Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I wouldn't let my children go. Absolutely not if I felt that they weren't safe. This is a suckling all over the place. Surely an energy director has to look at these price rises and say, are these justified? You take the kids, we'll take the bags. The kindness in her words, do you know what? I felt the tears flow. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with P. Morning. Before anybody rings up to ask what I think of it, whether they will or not, I don't know. I think the John Lydon song, uh, hopefully going to Eurovision, is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I I used to like PIL back in the day, the Public Image Limited. I used to like their stuff back in the day. It was completely bonkers. Um, But this is totally different. This is... It's beautiful. It's actually a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, you'll find it. You'll quick search wherever you get your music. You'll, you'll find it. It's already released. It's called Hawaii. It's lovely. And production is fantastic on another. Johnny Lydon's kind of one of our own, too, because Johnny, his mother is from Cork, and they used to go on holidays to Gary Vaux back in the day when he was a small fella. So, yeah, he's kind of one of our own, but I do, I love it, I heard it. And I knew people would be on this morning. Oh, has he heard it? Does he like it? Yes, I do. Yes, it's lovely. Will it get through? I don't know. My, my money might be on Wild Youth, I think, to go through. But you'd never know. You'd never know. 0818 96 96 96 is the number. Text to WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. Your email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Morning to you. That story's all over at your newspapers. Well, the Sun and the Star both have a front page feature on it. A lot of people talking again this morning about the cost of living. There was a survey yesterday on the price of groceries. I'll dig into it a bit more there in in a while. We know from the paper this morning that electricity prices, gas prices could change. They could fix. You might be able to fix now for a year on what your gas and electricity will cost. That's all starting to happen. But we know, whatever we're being told, we know that the cost of living is just ridiculous compared to this time last year and certainly compared to this time two years ago. The cost of living is ridiculous, which is why a lot of people are turning to moneylenders, small-time moneylenders, small-time licensed moneylenders, because there's a lot of licensed money lending out there. Uh, it's been a thing for years. The, the fella turning up to the door with the, the bag of cash or the cash wrapped up in a newspaper. I don't know if that still happens, but there's a lot of licensed money lending out there. But Brian has contacted us because Brian's had an experience over the last few days that has made him very, very wary. Morning, Brian. Good morning, Joe PJ. Um, basically, yeah, I, on Friday evening there, uh, just gone, I basically, I'm not eligible for a bank loan or for for a loan from the credit union as just yet because you have to be saving for so many weeks and 
so on and so forth. Yes. Um, and over the Christmas period, as, as we all know, everyone's finding a bit hard at the moment. And I said, geez, I look, I did look to see if, I, if there's a money lender out there. Hmm. And I'm down line. I, all I put into Google was the money, the money lender's Cork. Yes. And the first ad that popped up, I went into it. I put in all my details and how much I was looking for. And they said they'd ring me within 20 minutes to half an hour. So, and they duly did. And there was a man on the phone to me. And he says to me, yeah, I have no problem giving you the loan. No problem in the world. Yeah. Um, but there's two options. He says, you can go guarantor or unguarantor. Right. Now, to trust myself for being an independent person, I said, I go unguarantor. Do, do you mind me asking, Brian, how much you were asking for? Only thousand euro. Okay. Okay. Um, and I and he said basically that a thousand euro over twelve months is one hundred twenty a month repayments. And I said that's fine. That's no problem in the world. It's just I'm in a bit of a hoop at the moment. And I said am. Um, so that was fine. And they said to me that everything, everything was grand. And I go for the un, I go for the unguarantor loan. Um, so that was fine. So he said to me, "What we need," he says, "is for unguarantor." He says, "I need, I need, the, I, I need one month's payments first. Yes. So I said, "Fine." I said, "No problem. That's fine. No problem." So I drew him. I got my bank card. And so he wanted one hundred and twenty up front. Yeah. Right. And he said, "And he said there'll be no problem in the world." He said, "We'll give you the thousand euro." He said, "As soon as that, as soon as as soon as the one twenty is inside our account," he says. Um, we'll give you the thousand euros. I said, fine, no problem. And he said, you'll be going home. You'll you'll be going home a happy man. I said, fine, no problem. So I gave, I gave him the first month's uh, paid um, as repayments. Yes. And they said that'll take about an hour or two to go through. I said, no problem in the world. Um, that was fine. Um, he rang me then about half past three that evening, as as we agreed. And he said, Mr. Hammond, hello, how are you? I said, fine, no power things, and everything was fine. And he said, yeah. He said, you're after qualifying for the loan. He says. But he said, I just need a couple more of, of your details. I said, yeah, no problem. So I gave my bank details, as usually, as I had to. Um, and that was fine. And he said, look, he said, over taxes and charges, he said, and to make this all legit and to make it all above board and with the, and with the, and with the government laws of money lending, um, you, do we, need an, we, need, we need an extra 249 euros. Right. I said, right. I said, hang on a second. This is before he gives you a penny. Before he gave me a penny. Right. So you're already and, you're already into this guy for nearly four hundred quid, like. Yeah. Do you know? So I said to him, I said, Jesus, I said, I, I said, what's the story there? He said, he said, as soon as you'll give me the two hundred and forty euros or, or whatever he says, I'll refund that on top of your loan, so you get twelve hundred and forty back. Right. I said, right, fair enough. I said, I said, no. I said, I don't have that kind of money. I said, I, I like, I'm walking, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm walking everything. Why, why am I coming to a money lender if I have that kind of money to throw? Exactly, around? like yeah. because it's like if I two hundred forty euros and my one twenty, that's nearly half my loan. Yeah, exactly. So I said, no. I said, I don't have that. I said, he said, well, sort this. I said, how do you mean sort this? I said, I can't just sort this. I said, this is the whole reason I'm going to you. I said, is to get the loan, yeah. is to get money. So. He said to me, uh, he said, right, he, he said, you have my number. He said, as soon as you have it started, ring me and pay me, he said, and I'll pay you. I said, no, I said, I can't do that. I said, look, I said, what I'll actually do is, is I said, I'll cancel my loan. Yes. Right. Um, he said, yeah, that's no problem. He said, and are you putting it back into the same account? I said, I am indeed. Right. He said, no problem. He said, no, no, this is, no, PJ, this is the funny part. Now, this is right, and I lost the plot on the phone. He said to me, he said, you, you must give me 199 euros for me to give you back the 120. I said, I said, excuse me? Yes. Right. It'll, it'll cost you 199 euros to refund your money back to you. I said, so I'm going to lose in 200 to get back 120. So I, I called him every name under the sun. 
Yeah. As you usually would. Yeah. And he basically told me, he said, he said all, my, all your information has been taken down. He says, am I still sir, I will ring you? Right? Mm. And he said, uh, I said, okay, I said, get something to me. I'll give him a piece of my mind as well. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's not a problem. He said, my, my sister will ring you in half an hour. I said, grand, leave him ring me. So I hung up the phone. I'm, and I'm back to work. And I told my work colleagues that I just got scammed, basically, of 120, like. Yes. So I said, what am I going to do? And they said to me, um, during the guards. So I rang the guards in English straight away. Yes. And they told me, go to the bank. Um, and say to them what happened and everything. So I'm down to my own bank in, in Bishopstown. Or in, um, yeah, in Bishopstown. And they gave me the number for fraud. So basically, I had to ring fraud, basically, about it. Um, I was on the, I, I was on the hold, I was on call to fraud for nearly 40 minutes. And I hung up, and I, sp- and I spoke to nobody. Yeah. So basically, what I done is I basically rang my own bank, and I cancelled my bank card. Right. And and so basically, when so when I so when I cancel the bank card because because this fellow at the end of the phone has has the details, and you'd be afraid exactly, that he yeah. exactly PJ, exactly do you know and 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 I wait just going to the counter on Friday, and I would try to defeat and everything, and I don't want someone to get that money like I know, I know. You know? So I rang. So I was talking to the person inside the bank, and the person in the bank said, "What happened?" So I told him what happened, and they said it could be six months to a year or never to get the money back. Crikey. Yeah, because you willingly gave him your details, you see. That's, I willingly gave, gave yeah. my details. Now, I know, uh, and like, I have no problem, uh, like, uh, like, I will, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the name of the company if I have to, like, you know? It's mm. just that, uh, it's wrong. Like, it was, like, it's on Google. Like, how, how is this stuff able to get away every day of the week? And by the, and by the sounds of it, there's more than one person in this office doing this. Yes. Because, because, because you can hear in the background, they were talking to other people as well. I know. I know. It seemed like an awful lot of money to have to pay out to get what was a, yeah, a small see. loan to tide you over January. Yeah, do you know? And it's a long month as it is. Do you know? Yeah. And the way I'm looking at it is that if, if it was me, if it was me myself, and I gave him the 120, and he got, and he got seven or eight other people, that's 80,000 euros in one day. Yes, yes. And even this morning, he rang me again. Do you know? So there's no way you can get your 120 back no. without paying yeah. another 199. Yeah. So you'll be down 79 quid. Yeah. Well. I'm not doing that, PJ. Not hope. I'd rather, I'd rather just lose the money. Yeah. Brian, if, if anyone has been in this position and, and managed to get themselves out of it, they can tell yeah. us whatever, what the rules and regulations to do with legitimate licensed money lending are. I, I don't know. Crikey, it's, it's an awful lot of money to be putting up front for, for a very small loan. Yeah, like, uh, and like, I'm the same as everybody else. I'm working full time, like, and I have yes. my own house, and I have a child, and I have a car to run, and not everything is there, like, you know? Yeah. You just need to get dug out for a, for a month. Brian, thank you for that. Uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. Perfect. Cheers, Brian. Yeah, Kevin says, wouldn't, for the sake of a grand, wouldn't an overdraft be the answer? It would, Kev. It certainly would, but the problem is an overdraft is a credit facility and unless you've got a, a saving pattern or a lodgement pattern and maybe maybe Brian doesn't, maybe he's not long in the job, I don't know about that, but the bank may not see fit to give him a credit facility like an overdraft. But yes, you're absolutely right, you're better off getting an overdraft from your bank or you're better off getting a few quid out of your credit union at any time. But... We don't know what position he's in. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Eleanor was on. Johnny Lydon's mother came from Gary Vaux. I knew she was Cork. 
East Cork. Thanks for that. Johnny Lydon's brother came from Garyvaux. His uncle is still alive in that area, but is in the nursing home. That's from Eleanor. Thanks, Eleanor. 0818 96 96 96. We got a fabulous email from Michael. I'll get to this during the morning. Do you remember last week we are talking about who's really, and this is an old bugbear of mine, who's really in charge? Like, is the minister in charge? Is the civil servant in charge? If I'm the minister for education, or if I'm the minister for health, or if I'm the minister for whatever you have in yourself, surely I'm the guy who walks into the department and says, okay, I want this done. And the only job of a civil servant is to tell me whether it's legally possible, financially possible or not. Not to stand up and say, no, that's not happening, minister. Michael sent us a very good email about that, which I'll read during the morning. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Also coming up later this morning, you will remember that last week I was talking to Louise um, about her friend, her family friend, who's in a bad way with schizophrenia and they're trying to get services for her and the poor misfortune is in an awful way and the family are in an awful way and Louise is desperately, desperately worried about her friend. And we were chatting about that on, was it Thursday or Friday? Thursday, I think. We got a response from the HSE uh, to that and I'll bring you that before we finish today. 0818 96 96 96. I don't know the last time I was in an early house. I'd certainly say it's 20 years at least 20 years since I ventured in the door of an early house for anything other than a cup of coffee. More than that, I'd say. And the last one left, I was amazed to read in a, in a fabulous piece written actually in the Hollybow a couple of years ago uh, by, um, was it Joe? Joe? Jimmy Cohn? Jimmy Cohn, yeah, the late Jimmy Cohn. I was amazed to read that there was at one point there was 33, 33 early houses in Cork, which were licensed to open between seven, I think it's seven and nine, and serve a pint between seven and nine. And there's only one left to welcome in on Parnell Place, Portugal Regan. Good morning. I remember a few years ago that I was in there with you guys because there was a kind of a, it wasn't a campaign to close them down, or was it? Morning. Hi, Peter. Yeah, it was. It was. It was two thousand and eight, and I met you inside. And um, basically, there was there was a, a legislation being brought forward to curtail or to basically the end of, of early licenses. There was an advisory group set up, and they were looking at um, basically closing them down. Mm. And we we would we did have a campaign because at the time there was three of us still there. There was a sexton, Charlie's, and ourselves. That's right. And I met you inside, and in fairness to you, you were very accommodating, and you did a report on it for us, you know. And and actually, even there was a lot of great feedback from a lot of people that had great memories there. And I don't know, you know, that 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 definitely had a role to play in the whole thing because mm-hmm. I know they wrote back on it certainly afterwards because there was well there was a, there was a, I wouldn't say a huge outcry but people just thought this was here nanny state again telling us what we can and can't do you know I recall at so the time that, the people yeah. in there were yeah they were just ordinary people some of them I think there was one or two guards who'd come off night duty there was maybe yeah. a few fellas like that having a up like like I might have finishing work at 6 in the evening I might yeah swing by for a pint on the way home back then that was there, and that, 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 that was it. Was and it's still the same, PJ? So, like, 
you know, they have changed. So so things have changed in the last 15 years since I spoke to you. So a lot of the, the kind of cultural aspect of finishing up shift work, especially in the Gardaí or the fire service or doctors and nurses, it's no longer seen as something to do really afterwards, you know. Yeah. Um, but what you have instead is there's a lot more people still working in the nighttime economy. So you've got people that are in shift work now. So there's a lot, an awful lot more shift work over the last 20 years. Yeah. So you've people that are working in factories down in Rinskiddy, of people from the airport, um, industrial estates. So they're all finishing work at seven o'clock and they're on window. And yeah. it's it's a very sedate affair, I think. A lot of maybe your listeners that have never been in there, you get the idea that it's like party central. And for a while in Dublin and some of the places it was, it was like a, a continue on after the night before. Yeah. And you had kind of, there were kind of like almost raves and DJs and stuff like that in some of the places. But the majority of the early houses were very sedate affairs where you had people who were, you know, elderly. Uh, people of a certain age and you had those shift workers so you have a very broad spectrum of people that come in here yeah. but a lot of the people are the people that keep our economy going at night you know night porters in the hospital yeah. still come in guys finishing night porters in, in the hotels we still get people that you know are delivering our bread you know you get bakers you get you get taxi drivers people that are working all night so you get a lot of that and I suppose you know that's basically what it is it's mm. going down the television is on you've Sky News in the background there's no rave and and most Wait, people know each other inside Patrick, were you busy this morning no it's it's quiet this time of the year it will be quiet in, in the new year like you know the, it, it generally is like any other pope you'd, mm. you'd, uh, you'd be quiet and, but like there would have been a good buzz at Christmas you'd have a lot of people in shopping early you know they have a, um, you know, maybe maybe herself has gone out for 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 the shopping, and he's gone for a sneaky pint when he should be buying some <laughs> presents or something like that. So you get a lot of that where people drop in and out, and yeah. it's a very good atmosphere. It's good crack. Like I'm here twenty years, PJ, and like you know, I, I've been working in pubs for well over thirty five years, and like. It's good. It's good yeah. fun, and there's good banter. And there's, there's, no great harm. Characters. there's no harm being done to a living soul. I remember at the time of the the, the danger to your future being in with you, and I, the one thing I yeah. remembered was I wasn't long back from a holiday, and I was making the point that if I'm on holidays in Spain, I'm out for a walk at half eight in the morning. Yeah. And I want to have a fry for my breakfast. I can have a fry for my breakfast, obviously. But if I want to order a pint with that, I can. And there's no fuss, and there's no bother, and there's no kerfuffle. And I couldn't understand why we were moving away from that nice freedom, that nice civilised thing. Well, there, 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 had, there was a cultural shift and and drinking in bars for a long time became a kind of a, a deem, the demon drink and I get that that there, there there was a case for for that where you did have people that had you know drink dependency issues coming in, but the vast majority of people didn't. And yeah. you, what you were doing was you were taking away um, uh, like some something that people, especially the elderly. Like I still have a lot of elderly guys coming into me because they can't drink at night; they're afraid to drink at night. So they come in early, they have their few pints, they read the paper, yeah. and they're gone home. And that's their social aspect for the day. So, like, 
during lockdown, that was a very difficult time for lots of people, but especially these people, that this was their, like, I know we, we're called an early house, and it sounds like a cliche, that, but we're a home for a lot of people. No, so I, I see it that, they, you know, plenty of guys, even back in the day, they used to come in to me, and they'd be off it for November souls. You know, the older guys that would go off it for November, they'd still come in and have a cup of tea or something. I know. You know, they yeah. just want to see what's going on. And yeah. there is good cracking. There's still good characters coming in, but little by little, they're dying. And, yeah. you know, sad. I think you, that's you very sad to that. see. I think that's very sad to see. But like, you're the last one. Charlie's didn't reopen yeah. after the lockdown. They didn't redo their early yeah. hours. The sextant, of course, is gone. So you're the last one. Is it sustainable yeah. for you? Um, yeah, at the, uh, for the time being, because we we have our own clientele. I I don't look for you know I, I'm not advertising for 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 new customers or yeah, anything like that. We're quite happy to be. You're not going to start putting on ballads at half eight in the morning. Get a crowd no, in, like, and, no. I, and we don't and we don't we don't we don't take students. I I don't want young people coming in here. I want the people that are actually well able to to you know navigate the whole thing and yeah. that they know how to behave themselves right. in a bar and, do, do, and they're not Donald O'Keefe the wrote before. a lovely piece in the Echo over Christmas or over yeah, the New Year yeah it was a very about. nice piece but, and Donald was in and he witnessed it himself so he, he's able to look at it and, yeah. uh, and there would have always been negative connotations and yeah. I remember even three or four years back there was um, people looking for votes while they were going for city council and <laughs> it came out again about the early houses and, and I was gone. Here we go again. And these from people that had never, ever been in there. They don't know the people That's that right. go in there. They don't know anything about the place. And like there's something that we're, we're losing all the time, That's little right. by little, every year. Every year, there's there's less and less pubs in this country, and like since since 2006, there's 25 percent less pubs than there were in 2005. Yes, instances of domestic violence, public order, they're all increasing, and I'm a safe environment. So if someone comes into me or come into Dan in the morning, Dan is a legend. Dan is here for nearly 30 years, <laughs> and he knows how to control an environment like this. So if someone is intoxicated or inebriated, they won't be served. Yes, no one will get a Jaeger bomb off me in the morning. If you like, come in looking for, if you're coming bad, looking for a pint of Guinness get, and what you, you actually want is a feed of rashers, yeah. you'll be told. Yes, exactly, and 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 well, Dan will give you a boiled egg. Dan is noted for his boiled egg, and he, and if he says multiple boiled eggs, don't ever come back. You know, because I think in the piece that that Donald said is, it's not like Eastenders where you know, get out of me, pub. And then the following week, they're back inside. I could never understand that in Carnation Street inside inside in the, in the Rovers' return and they're fighting. And then the following week, they're back in there again. In reality, you're gone. You're gone. gone, you're gone you're you know, gone. and, 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 yeah. and you're... You know, even, like, even more stringent almost, barring orders than the high B. They're... they're we are, we are, we're up there with bro, poor old Brian, and 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 it would be along that line, and and Dan would be of that 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 kind yeah. of mentality. He's he's old school. Dan yeah. still pours a Heineken a two pour like his Guinness, <laughs> you know. And oh, and like there's God. some great stories with Dan over the years. Of I remember once we uh, because we're the only place that's open, so people arrive in the bus station. There's there's nowhere to get anything. There's nowhere to get a drink. There's nowhere to get changed. There's nowhere to go to the toilet. Mm-hmm. Do you know, so we haven't moved on in these kind of things. So you've got tourists arriving in in the bus loads, and there's nothing there for them. So we're the only place with a, a light on. So I remember one morning we had um, three French guys arrived in, and uh, they said hello, and Dan was hello, and uh, uh, three uh, three cafes, please. So Dan goes, no, 
and they're talking to themselves. What do they say? Wrong. No. And they were, uh, why not? And he goes, I've only two cups. And I put me and I put me false teeth into one of them. But there's a nice coffee shop there next door. Cameron oh, Bakery God, popped in there. So, so lads, the lads love those kind of stories. But uh, I mean, what I get in the morning, um, PJ, is the, the amount of crack. And even, even the term, like, we're the only country that comes up with a name for fun. You know, we have our own fun. So when someone talks about crack, you know automatically what it means. It's yeah. it's good, wholesome fun. It's it's blackguarding, it's scutting, it's it's but it's no harm. And no, no, we tend no. to lose that. But we, it's something yeah. that's unique to us, I think, that we we have a word for it and yeah. having the crack. Yeah. And that's what we're about as well, in that I've so many characters that have come into me over the years. And the great thing about us is that we're seen as a local both by north side and south side. Oh, so yeah. that's that's a kind of a unique part of what we are in that we're a local for people on both sides of the river. And I get so many fellas coming in there and stories over the years like I mean, I could I could go on all day about them like you know but like even there's a like I can't say names but there was a one particular guy in the he, he was going to the pharmacy and the son said to him, Dad, if you're going down, I have a prescription there. Would you get something for me? So in he went in and uh, the girl behind the counter, when he saw the prescription, he said, I'm here to get this for me, son. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, she said to him, is he a diabetic? He goes, no, he's a mechanic. <laughs> Do you know us? So like you kind of all these kind of characters. There's another yeah. guy that he didn't pay his TV license, and the, the the guy turned up at the at the door knocking, and he says to him, um, Mister McCarthy, he says uh, you've a you've a TV, but you've no license. He says I've no license. He says I've no TV. He says you do. He says I don't. He says you've an aerial on top of your roof. Yeah. He says, I've milk in the fridge. Doesn't mean I have a cold at the back. No way off. Do you know, and you, you get oh, all these great stories. stories. Great, and, and, great and, and, and stories. They, 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 that's kind of stuff that is doing. And you know something, Paddy? And, 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 and the one thing, I, I, I do have a, a bit of a fear in that. What I have seen, and, and, and I'm here 20 years, is, is the, the cultural shift from the pub, where it's good fun. And we grew up with that. But my own kids, they're teenagers now, and I see my own young fella at 18, and they don't have that concept. And the bane of our lives, and we won't see this for probably another 10 or 15 years, and I could be talking to you again in 15 years' time about this, is, is the, you know, drinking in house parties. And it's a serious issue, and I would have spoken to plenty of guards, especially guards in the drug squad, in that you come into me I will see if you're intoxicated or, you know, I won't be selling you or, uh, to get you drunk. I make sure that you're looked after. You know, the staff are here. We four walls. We're highly regulated. You go to a house party, which seems to be the thing, and especially in lockdown, we saw what was going on, is your daughter, your son goes out. They bring their few cans. Someone else arrives with a nagging. Someone else arrives with a bag of Coke. Yeah. I mean, you know, the day of someone walking into my pub and, 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 and snorting and putting a bag of coke, it's never going to happen. But we are allowing a situation develop now where that's what's happening for our kids at 18 and 19. Rather than having a, a drinking culture where there's older people that'll keep an eye on a fella. Yeah. If a girl got too drunk, that they'll, somebody else, another older lady might come along and look after them and get them a taxi. Yeah. 
and that's not happening. And then no, you, you look at it, you see all these parties, you see stabbings, you see incidents of stuff happening. And talking to the lads in the drug squad, that's where, where things are happening at the moment. Not in the pub. It never was in the pub. The pub is safe. And, you know, people talk about early licenses and dens of iniquity. It's, it's not real, you know. And, I mean, we've stood the test of time over the last 15 years. I don't know whether we'll be here or not. But, you know, I do think we're missing a trick in that. Mm. Like, when you talk about tourists visiting this country, 8 million a year, what is the single most one, number one thing they want to do? is to drink a pint of Guinness and listen to Irish music in an Irish bar. You know that's what, what people want. You're so and that's what we're, we're going away from that, you know. Do you know what, um, what is and, that? What, yeah. Do you know what's always worth, though, waiting for? Yeah. Is the look on a Yank's face when you say... Are you here for the cry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's it. They, they, they don't know what we're talking about, but we, but we love taking the mic. So, like, you know, but even we can go back to the origins of, of, of these, like, early licenses. I remember back, back in 2008, I started doing a bit of work on it at the time because I suppose, you know, my livelihood has been taken away. But, like, we can trace our origins back to medieval times. And there was a license granted by Royal Decree for to cater for coach travellers and those engaged in commerce. And nothing has actually changed yeah. in that period of time. It's still far the same thing. So you you three distinct areas in Cork. You had the port, um, which was down the Docklands, our area here. Then you had up around the Colgate for, for the people engaged in the English market. And then you had up around um, the English market area. So you you'd three kind of areas for, for those early licences. Yeah. Um, and then you look back at the history of you know people that used to frequent them, the likes of Brendan Bean, Paddy Kavanagh, mm-hmm. Oliver St. John Gogarty. And I've even a quote here from, from Paddy Kavanagh where he talked about that he'd attest to the greater fluidity and ease of expression yeah. after an early morning tipple. I know. So, Pardon. can you imagine? Can you imagine Raglan Road after five skinny um, lattes? Uh, Wouldn't it be the same thing? Or, or, or the old... The old the old triangle after three macchiatos. No, I don't think it would have the same ring. No. You know, and no. look, uh, you know, not not to not to kind of make things, you know, uh, uh, comments about things. But you know, that's we're yeah. losing these kind of things. And I suppose I'll be gone because there won't be a trade there. And you know, I certainly won't be, you know, serving young people and students and people out the night yeah. before and when when my regulars are gone I'll be gone alright listen and, that, and hopefully that's, that's, that, that's not for a very long time Padraig a great chat I could stay with you for the morning but we've other things to do Padraig O'Regan, O'Regan from the Welcome Inn in Parnell Place Cork's last early house oh long 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 may they survive 0818 96 96 96 there's something going on with licensing and the vintners are concerned about it. And I don't fully understand it. So let's get a quick explanation next. You guys ready? We're driving, we're driving. The Big Drive Home. Weekdays from four. On Cork's 96FM. January. It doesn't have the best reputation, does it? On the Big Drive Home, though, we're banishing the blues every evening. There's a bit of this. <laughs> Everyone! 
there's a bit of that. Every summer I'd be going to the bog and doing turf. I could confirm a tea break at the bog is the best. And there's a bit of whatever this is. He does a four nipples. Yeah, you had to be there for that one. Basically, whatever it takes to make your journey home that bit easier. So leave the January blues at the door and join me weekdays from four. The Big Drive Home, Cork's 96 FM. Join the conversation. Now, 0818 So the Vendors Federation is concerned about a change in the rules on licensing, uh, to do in particular with uh, family-owned pubs. It was a case, Michael O'Donovan from VFI, that if my pub closed, another pub could open. But another pub couldn't open while my pub stayed open. And that's going to change. Have I got it summed up there? Morning. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, look, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I suppose um, it's called extinguishment. And under the sale of alcohol bill that's being proposed at the moment, the government is looking to end extinguishment. And we're really concerned about that. Um, it's, it's, I, you, you, you said family pubs there, but it's all pubs, really, uh, PJ. Um, if a pub, there's two ways of entering the business at the moment. The, to, you either buy a pub that is trading with a license and you get it transferred into your name, or if you buy a premises um, that wasn't previously licensed, you can go and buy a license and get it transferred into that pub. Uh, and that license primarily comes from a pub that is closed down. So that's called extinguishing the license and bringing it across. What the government are proposing is that you would not need to extinguish a license, that you could apply for a new license and open up. Um, we're worried about that because, as Paddy said there, we've seen a huge decline in pubs from 2005 to now. Um, there's been you know, a 21% decline, and I suppose that's come from um, demographics um, and I suppose um, the rural areas, uh, I suppose this would be more of a concern for rural areas where there's one pub or two pubs trading that if a third pub came in, you know, it would split the business and it, it's just not viable. We, yeah. we've, we, the we only feel thing, Michael, isn't that a little bit anti-competitive in that if I want to open my pub across the road from your pub, let the market decide who lasts. I mean, that's that's business. Yeah, look, PJ, we're in competition every day. Uh, you know, pubs with pubs, pubs with other hospitality, pubs with hotels, with restaurants. Um, but what we've seen in, in rural Ireland especially is that the competition isn't there to sustain uh, a number of pubs because if it was there, we'd still have the pubs that were there open. And our real concern is that we will see what's happened in the UK replicated here and you know Paddy there spoke of the Irish pub being you know the tourist comes here to see the Irish pub uh, they're being replicated all over the world and we're doing our best here now to get rid of the Irish pub the the family run pub that's involved in the community sponsoring the local teams you know we've a real concern that this in a couple of years' time, we could be looking at a scenario where we'll have pubs in communities, but they'll only be there for profit. They won't be interested in partaking in the community. And we think this is a flawed piece of mm-hmm. legislation. Um, that, uh, that is, it, is it gone through yet, or is it just in the process? It's in the process. It's been proposed by Minister McAtee at the moment, and, you know, it, it's, it's a huge bill. Um, there's over 490 pages in the bill. Uh, a lot of it we're very much in agreement with. It's just this particular section on extinguishment uh, we have a real issue with because we feel it's to the detriment of especially rural communities um, mm-hmm. in the cities and the big towns. 
as you said, there is huge competition. That's not going to change. And if a new pub opens, as we see here in the city, pubs come and they, they go, that's competition. That's where the market will find itself. But in rural Ireland, it's, it's, a, it's a different ball game where well, people well, are trying to survive. Would the same not apply to rural Ireland, Michael, if you're in Main Street of Bally wherever uh, with your pub and you do a little bit of local business? I mean... I'd either want to be a fool or a millionaire to open across the road and try and take you on where I, if I do any kind of a feasibility at all I'll realise that, that Baddy Go Wherever won't sustain another pub it's yeah. just business yeah look we, we've look PJ we, we can only use the barometer of what's happened across the water in the UK where um Big multiples went into towns and villages yeah. and they wiped out it's what was problem, there. Of in itself, um, and they're there for one specific reason where at the moment, you know, tourists come here, as I keep saying, and like they love going to the rural pub to see what's happening. That will disappear under this legislation. There's no doubt about that. And we can see, you know, in a couple of years' time, we'll, we could be left with a scenario that there mightn't be any pubs in a town or a village that this would have the opposite effect of what it's desired to do. OK. All right, Michael. Thank you very much for that. That's Michael Donovan from Castellane. And he's the uh, Cork Vintners Federation spokesman. 0818-96-96-96. One man's competition, I guess, is another man's demise. Uh, It's not gone through just yet, but it looks like it might. And as he said, there's an awful lot more in that bill than just all of those different provisions with regard to to pubs. You'd wonder what the civil servants are telling their minister in the Department of Justice, wouldn't you? I will get to that email from uh, Michael during the morning. It was a fascinating take on what I was saying about who is in charge. Like, is Helen McIntyre, although she's on maternity leave now at the moment, but it's Simon Harris is running her department at the moment. So is it he's in charge? Is he the one who walks in the morning and says, well, this is what I want done? Or is it, well, Minister, this is what we're doing today? Which is it? Because I'd be worried if it was the second one. I really do think the Minister of the day should be in charge. They get legal advice, they get financial advice, they get all that kind of advice. But if the Minister of the day isn't in charge... Then where are we with this? I'll read that later. 0818 96 96 96. Now, the numbers of people on trolleys are down somewhat and there were more people being discharged from hospitals across the weekend. And that discussion is ongoing day in, day out at the moment. Um, Over the weekend, lots of people worked extra shifts and extra hours and there were more discharges on the weekend just gone than there normally are at at weekends. And that's all playing out as it will play out. But Elaine, you wanted to make the point that the mess that's in our health system at the moment, the mess that's in the emergency departments, that didn't just arrive overnight. And I think everyone would agree, that's been coming for a long, long time. Morning. Morning, Peter. How are you? Hi. You reckon this is just was waiting to happen, they knew it was going to happen, and it's been left happen? Well, yeah, I mean, unless you've been living under a rock in this country, we, we've been hearing, you know, the INMO, the, the different um, medical organisations, the, the people on, on the front line talking at length and ad nauseum about how they're under pressure, the system's under pressure, their staffing rates are down... You know, it's just inevitable that this has happened. And, you know, the blaming winter that we have every single year is just frustrating mm. as a, you know, as an excuse at this stage. There will always be a winter. People always get the flu. Yeah. 
Nowadays, yeah. people will always get COVID. It's going to happen. There is this adult version of the RSV virus, which is bothering a lot this year. But th- people are going to get sick in the winter. That That's just fact. That's a fact, yeah, exactly. But what's really frustrating, I suppose, is we know when we see our medical personnel contemplating emigrating because the basic stuff isn't being provided for them, you know, like their pay isn't correct, their HR systems aren't right. Like, that's really frustrating when they're already working in an environment that's challenging in the first yeah. place. We're training good young nurses, we're training good young doctors, and they're, they're headed for the airport. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I suppose the reason why it's not overnight is I had a, a similar experience to the lady from Blarney last week that was on, on the radio, but yeah. I had it back in November. Yeah, you had an awful time. Tell me more yeah. about that. I suppose it, it started, um, I had a respiratory virus, which we're all experiencing now, but it, it exacerbated asthma. And um, I had to be, my GP referred me to the A&E department. Yeah. And by the time I was seen and treated, you know, I was two, past triage. I was two hours without any medical help in a very bad way. Mm. A nurse came to me. She took my obs. It was six hours before she got back to me. Yeah. She was almost in tears saying, I'm really sorry. I'm letting you down. I haven't been back to you. I haven't had anyone here today. That was her words to me. She had 40 patients. 40 patients. Yeah. Um, it was another... That was six hours later. And How then can to, one person yeah. manage 40 people? Impossible, you know. And they're giving they're giving a part of the service to everybody because they're splitting themselves 40 ways instead of being able to help somebody all the way through the, you know, the, the process. That's the problem. There was a time when we used to have 40 in a primary school class yeah. and the country was up in arms because we realised you can't teach children in that yeah. in, in that environment, you can't help sick people under that kind of pressure. Exactly, you know. And when you're dealing with that type of pressure as a day job, day in day out, and then you have other things to contend with on the, on, in the background, like your pay not being correct, your overtime not being correct, you know, your your rota not being like you can't get day off because other people aren't there, the agency isn't there. It, it's just a ball of frustration. Yeah, yeah, it is. You no, know? I was, I was. That's the the annual leave thing and, and trying to get time off for family occasions and trying to get a job, get a holidays. I mean, as someone who has the, the privilege in my work of being able to know between now and next January every day yeah. that I have booked off, I can't exactly. imagine what it must be like. I cannot imagine what it must be like. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a medic at all. I'm, I'm an ordinary person in the community, but it's just, and I'm, the, I'm a Joe Soap who's looking in on this and can see so many areas that the HSE can improve things. Like, you know, if, if, the, if their hands are tied with beds and stuff that we're hearing day in, day out, fix the other things. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, we know that, you know, to opening a bed, this expression, open a bed, well, it's not just a matter of going to a bed shop and buying yeah. a bed. You've got to hire staff for that bed. But the staff that are already there, if you're telling me that one young nurse was looking after 40 people. Yeah. Sure, Add another bed. She's going to run screaming for the door. Exactly. But one thing I would say is I would rather they didn't focus so much on hiring people. I would rather they focus on retaining them. Yes. Yes. You know, there's all this overhiring 16,000 nurses. I think Michael McGrath said something. But how many have left? How many left? Correct. 
Correct. They're going out, they're going in one door, they're taking one look at what lies in front of them and they're running out the other door. Exactly. Look, we saw with the Defence Forces, same thing happened. They didn't retain the people there. They just thought they could backfill them and it never happened. And now they're on their knees. Yeah. And look, the same is happening with social work. So yeah. I, I happen to know this, that there's for every, I think it's the statistic is for every three social workers that are hired, one is leaving. Exactly. Why is, yeah. and does anyone, you wonder, does anybody sit down, Elaine, in a government department and think, why are all these people leaving? I'm sure people are asking the question, but they're not being heard. The right, the, and then the people who are asking the question, they're not being given enough time and, you know, I suppose, acknowledgement that there is a problem because they're talking to the top brass who are too busy with other things and protecting their own job, jobs and protecting you know, the next guy coming up behind them. Like, if, if, if all these people are leaving consistently, there's something up. So exactly. you're, you're never going to solve the problem unless you ask the question. And like, I think the, the point you're making there, Elaine, you're so right. At the top of our society, people don't ask the question because they don't want to hear the answer. Yeah, exactly. You know, and if people, if, if, if they're medical people, you only need to be online or on social media to say like they hold Australia up in, in this big, mm. um, you know, what's the word, um, pedestal. Yes. Okay, mirror it. What are they offering that we're not? Match it. Well, I did speak to one young Cork woman. It's a few years ago now. She was out there nursing and she was in, in Melbourne. And one remarkable thing about her job was that there was a maximum by law the number oh, yeah. of patients she was al- allowed to have on a shift. I think it may have been as low as eight. That's right. I remember reading something like that. And the minute more than eight people came on the ward, another nurse had to be found. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and like here you have it, one misfortune with 40 people. And I'd like to when she came back to you, practically yeah. in tears. Well, she was, yeah, she was really, really upset. And what she said was, I am not helping anybody. And I said, I said to her, by the fact you came to work today, you're helping, you're helping me. That was a good, yeah. kind thing to say, Elaine. It was a kind, yeah. and I know you were in a bad way at the time. You were very sick. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very, very sick. Yeah. There was a, an email we got last week from Mark, who was in COH. Uh, yeah, I think he's home now, but he was in COH and he was observing what was going on during the night so he couldn't sleep. And yeah. he said there were, there were staff actually crying when they were yeah. talking to him. Yeah. That's not Oh, all. yeah. I people ask me, please complain, this is cruel. Like, these are... These are the people we're relying on to come in every day and do that job so that when we get sick, we're helped. That's the bottom line. Exhausted people make mistakes. Yeah, of course I do. And they live with that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know? What, what do you think we should be doing, Elaine? I can talk about this. I'm just a gob on a stick. I can talk <laughs> about this all day, every day. You've been there. You've sat through it. You've come out the other side of it. And I hope your health is good now. What, yeah. what, can, what can we do? Really small things for a start, which I asked the HS, I, I wrote to the HSE and asked, I asked them to do a couple of things. One, make sure people in A&E have a pillow, because yeah. I didn't, for the yeah. 72 hours I was in there. <clears throat> I brought one in from home. Um, I would ask them to seriously look at the lights, the fluorescent lights that are on 24-7. You can't sleep in there. Yeah. You know, um, and the third thing would be that they stop talking about hiring people and start focusing on retaining them. No. Yeah. 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 Start retaining them. And actually, many of the things you were talking about there, particularly the, the, the first two, a, a simple little thing like a pillow. Yeah. 
and and it's such a simple thing like a pillow and the light to dim the light so that people can can at least try and get some rest but they can't apparently because this is where the new pods are in the atrium yeah that they can't turn off the lights so rewire the flipping lights exactly rewire the lights get an electrician to rewire the lights and just put a fade on them yeah. That's all you need to do. My God, I can do it. At, I can do it at home. I can go to an electrical shop, buy a fader light and do it. There must be some... Uh, then, then these are all the things, actually, and they are some of the things that Chris Luke was talking about last week. Little, small, yeah. tiny things that mean an awful lot. Well, huge. Like, I mean, if, if you imagine, I was there for 60 hours. You don't have a tray because you don't have a bed. So I had to balance my little paper plate with my toast on it. No, I say toast, that's wrong. I had a croissant. You get tea and a croissant mm. in the morning. You get a box in the afternoon with your hot meal, which was the same for the three days I was there, the same meal. And you get a box in the evening with your sandwich and yogurt and you're balancing it on your bed. I mean, I keep saying bed, your chair, sorry. Those are simple things that should be addressed and they can be easily addressed. Very easy to. Thank you very much for that and I, I trust that your health is is uh, is back to its full strength thank you 0818 96 96 96 after 10 I'll be talking to a consultant Dr Lisa Guthrie she's been very vocal on her own social media about what it's like to be a doctor or a nurse on the front line right now the minds are live Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. This week, uh, I, I saw it myself when my dad, got big old, was brought in to COH for the for the last time, unfortunately. But I do remember seeing ambulances there waiting to get their trolley back. Why don't they have more trolleys so they can just free up the ambulance trolleys? Those paramedics could be out there saving lives. And we've all heard stories about people waiting an hour or more for an ambulance. Yeah, when you come in to the hospital by ambulance you have to be cleared the paramedics do a handover with you to the staff and then the staff are supposed to get you in and get you onto a bed or get you onto a trolley get you into where but you can't the only thing that you can lie on and remember if you come out the back of an ambulance you're going to be lying down you can't sit up or walk around the only thing you can lie on is the trolley on which you came so they stay with you and the paramedics have to stay with the trolley until they can go back into the into the ambulance. And I know it's a fairly specialised piece of kit, these things, but the idea that you'd have a couple of them lying around to swap in and swap out, it makes sense to me anyway. But then again, as I say, I'm just a gob on a stick. But I do, I see that I see that point. No pay for the extra hours. The rate isn't enough. The pay is rubbish. Doctors and nurses are not being paid enough. Twelve local nurses went to Australia after Stevens's day. I know a doctor coming back from Australia refuses to work here. Pay them first, then you'll get the staff you need. 0818 96 96 96, the number. Text to WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. And the email is opinion at 96mm.ie. Now, Dr. Lisa Guthrie is a consultant in emergency and pre-hospital 
medicine. And she's been putting up a lot of stuff on her Instagram lately, talking about the acute crisis in our hospitals and how the, as you put it, Lisa, how the political perspective differs from the frontline perspective. Is that what you're saying to me that you're saying on Instagram is that the politicians look upon this one way you see it another way and the two for some strange reason aren't meeting. Good morning. Good morning PJ thanks very much. Um, yeah that's exactly it. I, I think because I've worked in the Irish emergency medicine system for the last 12 years I've seen it every year year in year out. I see when there's surges um, you can kind of almost follow or predict what the media report, which is the political perspective normally. Every now and again, they may have a patient or a frontline worker's perspective. However, I think over the last week or two, I've been exceptionally annoyed over the perspectives that are getting trotted out by the political parties, um, when actually at the end of the day, and my 12 years experience, is that this is predictable. This is exactly what we know happens mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. And the result of our acute bed capacity crisis. So not having enough beds in our hospitals, which has been predicted for the last 20 years. However, sometimes the political perspective would like to kind of deflect from that. Um, And as we saw last week, blame the frontline staff for not working hard enough and then wanting us to work harder over a weekend and Mm. this is going to solve all the acute problems. Now over the last weekend just gone, more people did work more hours. There were some extra shifts, but and, and things did move a bit more slick, or so we're told. But that having been said, these are people who are already working a full week and already flat out putting in more hours. They shouldn't have to do that. Uh, true. So just if you want to take that point of like things worked more slicker, um, is that if that's got to do with the media reporting of 44% more discharges that happened over the weekend, the figures on that is actually there were 400 discharges on Saturday compared to the week previously, which was New Year's Eve, by the way, of 287 discharges in the country. Sure. So that's our 278, actually. It was 122 more discharges over a weekend to where? To discharge facilities that possibly aren't coping that well anyways. We don't have the bed capacity for step-downs, etc. Or there may be patients that have been discharged in an untimely manner due to the pressures of the politicians and the government saying we need to discharge more patients. So I would actually look on if they're saying that it was more slick over the weekend, actually how slick was it? And, and if that's what we're defining as slick by a hundred That's my word, by the way, Lisa. That, 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 prob- yeah, sorry, probably a clumsy choice if, of word. Let me, let, let me hand the floor to you. You're there on the front line doing this incredibly valuable job every day. Tell me about your day, Lisa. Say eight to eight or whatever shift you were. Tell me about your so day. So I was on call and yesterday. I, and I'll shut up until you're finished. Go on. <laughs> no, I mean, I think a lot of people are probably, they've heard my ranting on Instagram over this, but I mean, I work very regularly on call at least once every five days. So yesterday I was on call. Um, so I started at nine o'clock yesterday morning. Now I did not physically leave the hospital until quarter past 11 last night. Um, I'm on call from home. You get one or two calls maybe throughout the night for clinical information, or if there is a very unwell patient that comes in, a trauma, etc. cetera, I, I have to physically get my car and go back into the hospital as Um, But I'm back in again for nine o'clock this morning as well. So I've had in total maybe about six and a half hours sleep last night. So I have three young kids, have to get them up in the morning and try and get them out as well. So I come back in and I'm doing a normal day's work today. So throughout my whole day yesterday, I'm in my scrubs and runners on the floor, seeing patients from triaging. So out in 
the where patients are coming into our hospitals and into our emergency departments. And I think people do get a little bit confused that the patients that come into the emergency department do not all translate into patients that are going to be admitted. So where I work in Mayo University Hospital, we see between 100 and 150 patients a day. It tends to go down maybe around the 100, 110 at the weekends. Mondays and Tuesdays are always the busiest days of the emergency departments around the country. That, that would be statistics. So yesterday, I don't know offhand, but it probably felt about 140, 150 patients to come through the door in the 24-hour period. So not all of those will get admitted. Between 25 and 30% of those patients would normally get admitted. Now, remember, we have a growing population and we have an ageing population. So the more patients that are presented to the emergency departments, the more of that 25% is going to be admitted. And that's the general figure around it. So we know what we can plan for, for bed capacity over the last 20 years. But unfortunately, it just hasn't happened, no matter how much we've shouted about it as frontline right. workers. Right. So of the 150, we'll say, if a quarter of those must be admitted, that's mm-hmm. 60, is it? Yeah, just 50 something. Yeah, and it does wax and wane between. Yeah, yeah. and it waxes and wanes between kind of, you know, maybe we might be able to get somebody to a medical assessment unit, maybe in an appointment in two days' time rather than have to come in. We'll try and kind of see where what alternative options that we have for patients' treatments. Um, Patients do unfortunately come in, they may need to get a scope done. Uh, they've been on a waiting list for a while with scopes and as we see now that when bed surges happen, elective work gets cancelled. So patients who are waiting their scopes and waiting their elective work gets cancelled and unfortunately sometimes it hits a point for them that they can't wait anymore mm. and they actually have to come to the emergency department. But this is what we see day in, day out. It's Yes, it's happened probably more in the media eye over the last two weeks or so, but we've had a bed surge in, in August of this year. We, we have it throughout the years. We have it and it's just, it feels like it falls on deaf ears unless, you know, it gets to a point like what it has done over the last two weeks. Yeah. Record numbers are on trolleys. Go through a topic. It's a term that is used and, you know, we have an understanding of what it is, but triage, Triage is stage one when you get in. Talk to me, Lisa, about what triage is. Yeah, so triage, we use a triaging score, which is an international scoring system. Uh, The basics of it is how quick you need to get emergency care. So we look at lots of different aspects. It's called the Manchester triage score. So it's not something that we just employ on different hospitals at an ad hoc whim basis. It is looking at to see who's the sickest person and who needs the urgent emergency care first. So when somebody comes in, just say, for example, with chest pain, they will get certain scoring markers on the triage scoring system. And then by their vitals and by extra aspects of their history that we take from them, they will be deemed higher maybe than somebody who's coming in with a chest pain that might be from... uh, pulled muscles or something like that. You know, so we have a way of being able to know it. And it's a very solid-based international scoring system. So this is why I refute when people say that emergency departments can be done by appointments, because absolutely not. We, Yesterday, for example, we would have a patient who came in with a chest pain and ended up with a cardiac arrest. So we know exactly that these patients, certain patients with triage scores that are higher, they do end up needing more emergency care. Um, so you have four different categories, five different categories normally. One, two, three, four, five. So somebody coming in with a cardiac arrest where their heart has stopped beating would be automatically cat- category one. Somebody with active chest pain 
we might have a significant history that shows that we are suspecting a heart attack for this patient, will be given a category two. The majority of the patients would normally be a category three. That may be somebody who's coming in maybe with uh, stomach pain that might be having, say, a gallbladder infection. Um, not necessarily septic, and we look for those at the triage markers. Uh, category four might be somebody who's fallen over and maybe hurt their wrist. Yeah. And somebody uh, for a category five might be somebody who's coming in with maybe a six-month history of toe pain or something like that, um, that they will be deemed lower in acuity. I remember and bringing in myself after a fall two. one time, Lisa. I, I took quite a heavy tumble outside my outside my front gate and, and I was in pain and I knew there was something up. Um, I went to the ED and I met a very, very excellent nurse who went through the triage system with me and I asked her, I said, what, what's going on here? So she explained what she was doing, exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. I said, no, you know, you need to be seen because we need to be sure there isn't anything seriously wrong. I don't think there is, but we need to see you anyway. Now, have you got a book with you? Because you're going to be waiting. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, that's fine. Can I have something? Because I'm in a lot of pain. And she, yes. she gave me paracetamol. And that's, and I had to wait. I understood, but the thing is, they're now so overcrowded, even that is hard to do right. Yes, so the triage, uh, we've seen more patients presenting with category two and uh, and category threes coming in the last at least two to three weeks. So these are patients that are sicker. So we're getting uh, definitely on the ground. I'm seeing a lot more patients that are more septic. We've seen a lot more heart attacks. And uh, to be fair, I really feel that a lot of these are patients that may have decided not to seek medical attention for whatever reason, either over a Christmas period or feeling that they didn't want to bother their GPs, etc., or may not want to have come to the emergency department. But actually, by the time that they come into us, they're actually quite unwell yeah, with yeah. it. So category twos, category threes, and as you said, PJ, rightly so, triage is also a point where we can give analgesia for patients. So uh, we would always document if patients are offered analgesia or if patients decline analgesia. Um, so pain relief, if they have a sore arm, etc., or if they've just taken their analgesia, so somebody's taken paracetamol or neurofin or ibuprofen before they came in. So that's all documented in it as well. Normally what we would have in in the emergency department in uh, Mayo, we have a booklet system or a little leaflet that we also give to patients to let them know about the categories. Um, We are working on a system as well to have a lot more awareness in the waiting room about the different categories and potentially how many are in on each category. Because I think that information is definitely key for patients when they're coming in. Mm. Not only when they're in the emergency department, but also if you're sitting at home now listening and having your cup of tea and you you may have to come to the emergency department in two or three weeks' time. At least you are armed with the information going, okay, there's a system in here that they're working. It's not because Mary down the road was going in before me that she might know somebody in there. Mm. It is an absolutely international system that we all use looking at who is going to be most unwell and who needs the emergency okay. care first. Okay. And you said actually about falling over. I mean, people say, oh, well, I've tripped and I've fallen over. But sometimes the trip could actually be somebody having a mini stroke. So actually they might have lost consciousness before yeah. they fell over. Yeah. We tease that out in somebody that's having a that's triage. Right. So you might that's see somebody right. with a sore wrist and they come in before you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But actually when we tease it out of them, they've had a loss of consciousness beforehand and then therefore that gives them a higher priority. Indeed. But you might see them with a sore wrist in the waiting room. Indeed. But actually their backstory is something different. Indeed, indeed. Now, your Instagram at the moment is you've, you've put up some some research and and some study results and three stark words here, Lisa, that are jumping out of your Instagram, and you're saying this mm-hmm. in your position as a consultant and pre-hospital doctor. People are dying. Yes, 
People are dying as a result of this. And we know this, PJ. There is research to show this. There was a massive study that was done over in the UK over the course of three years. And they just published it at the beginning of 2022. And the media did take up on it. But the research, the basic research that shows is that for every time that you have a patient that spends over six hours at a trolley, in the emergency department, for every 82 patients, one patient will die and have a direct consequence of that at the end of 30 days. So their 30-day mortality is actively affected negatively by waiting on a trolley for greater than six hours. Wow. That's, and that's we know this. This has come out and we've said this so often. We've said it so often prior to this. But now that we have the basic research, which was over three years, they had, I think it was over about 73,000 patients that they analysed over the UK for this. And we could definitely translate this to the Irish system because, and, you know, I've got a huge amount of friends. I've done my fellowship over the UK. Our Irish system was definitely, it was heading that way prior to the English system. The English system is quite bad and under a lot of pressure at the moment. We, we talk about it quite frequently with my friends. But this is something that we've had for the last 10 or 12 years. But now we have act, actual research saying patients are dying when we leave them on trolleys. And patients now, there's nearly 500 on trolleys this morning. Patients are waiting one, two, three or even four days on trolleys around the country. Mm. What does that do to their 30-day mortalities? I, I've got a question for you to come back to the political perspective in just a second, but this is coming on the phone and I do think it's a relevant one to put to you. Why, if an experienced GP has diagnosed a condition and advises someone then to go to the ED, why does the patient have to then again go through the A&E system to get admitted? Why can't they go straight through if they have a diagnosis in hand, as it were? So they have two options, actually. So they can come to an emergency department, but they can also come to an acute medical assessment unit. So, and I'm speaking, uh, you know, I've had probably about 12 different EDs under my belt around the country throughout my training in Ireland. Um, And the majority of the times, GPs do have access to the acute medical assessment unit, which is where that they can book in the patient, actually get the full workup or whatever that they need to be done and potentially not avoid it, or sorry, not uh, have to be admitted, but they can get all their workup done. However, if it's for a bed that they need to come in through an emergency, emergency department. So if it's a chest pain that needs further workup, then they probably do need to come in through the emergency department for it. So GPs do have the access. Now, the access can be very limited when Mm. we have this bed surge because the acute medical assessment units are used as the actual physical space where patients may be on trolleys from the emergency department and are put into the acute medical assessment unit, therefore limiting the GP's access to the acute medical assessment unit. So the facilities are overrun, Lisa? Absolutely. We need space. And I heard you saying earlier on about the trolleys and coming in, you know, to come off from the ambulance. And I work in the pre-hospital as well. Good. So for somebody coming in off an ambulance trolley to come onto our ED trolley, I have found in the last two weeks, we physically do not have enough trolleys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have actually ran out of trolleys. And this, we've seen it every now and again, maybe over the last 12 years that I've experienced it. But the last two two weeks, it's just been, we have nothing to put the patient onto. So they're safer on an ambulance trolley than they are. And unfortunately, that is causing the backlogs into the mm. pre-hospital system where we have paramedics and advanced paramedics that are waiting. They do try and um, do a cohorting policy, which is where one of the local ambulance officers, um, that is one of the National Ambulance Service policy, to come down and release the crews, two crews normally, and the national officer will actually, or the ambulance officer will stay with those patients while they're waiting for handover. Um, but again, that could be quite 
quite hard to do and the local officers may be deployed somewhere else, etc. So, so everybody many, is definitely, there's so much pressure. So there's many pinch so points. So many pinch points in what's actually quite a small area, Lisa, and you're painting a, an incredibly educational picture for us. And I thank you for it. So come back to the politicians and let's just pick the man of the moment, Stephen Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly is standing at the front door of your department right now, Lisa. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? I'd say, bring I'd him say in and show him Yeah, fall to his shock. Well, just shock and let's see, you know, where you can feel that we can improve things. And, um, you know, I, and I feel maybe it's coming across at times that I might be, you know, against the politicians. You know, they have a very hard job to do as well. And I do understand that over the last previous 10, 12 years, we've had successive ministers of health and it I hear it bandied about so much that it's the poison challenge that nobody wants. And I feel that he's in good faith. He's done very good work for other aspects um, in our healthcare. But this, it's not his fault. It's definitely successive governments that have created this problem and that it's not, it's all resting with him at this moment in time. But I would actually ask him, please listen to us and treat this as the emergency that it is. And I treat it as an emergency like COVID was. We were able to get extra beds, extra capacities very, very quickly and rightly so Mm. when it was COVID. We have patients that are dying on trolleys, on trolleys, physically on trolleys or within the 30 day mortality. Why can we not treat this as the same emergency that it is. We need the extra bed capacity. Even this morning, the Nursing nursing Home Ireland chief exec came out and said that actually he surveyed all of the private nursing homes and they have over 700 beds that they're now going to give to the HSE in total. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Talk with the HSE about it. I'm going, this is fantastic. Hopefully this momentum will be able to be kept up that we can create those extra bed capacities. And if he could be able to do something to help that in the acute situation, then it would just be, it would help so many patients and frontline staff as well. All right, all right. Tom points out here, Lisa, during his time as Minister for Health, Charlie Charlie Hawhey, God remember that name, reduced the hospital beds by a thousand and he was proud of it. They've never been replaced. On the other hand, when the health boards became the HSE, there was no problem retaining all the administrators. 
It's not run for the medical staff or the frontline staff. It's 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 an administrative network up there. It, it is quite a um, yes. It can be, and you sometimes feel as a frontline worker. This is me sp- speaking as myself Please, yeah. with experience, but also uh, you know from a lot of my colleagues and friends. And one of my best friends is here as a clinical operations manager since I was thirteen. So the two of us have great out chats over this, and we just feel sometimes that we feel that we are the minority as frontline workers for the patients, um, that we feel we're in the minority and we're the ones that are actually physically in contact with the patients um, and I, I now I'm a little bit beyond the Charles Harry era but um, just even look at the statistics from the 1980s that we know that we have bed capacity that is a lot more in the 1980s than we have now so we had over 16,000 acute beds in 1980 when we had a population of 3.5 million now we have probably about between 10 and 11,000 acute beds and we've grown significantly in our population, in our ageing population. So I don't know where exactly Charles Hockey fit into that for the Minister for Health, but um, definitely around the health boards between 98 and 2003, if you see the graph, and I put this up quite often on the Instagram, because I think it's a very stark visualisation of our bed capacity going down. But between 98 and 2003, it just seems to tail off quite significantly at the amount of free beds that we have. And that may be the reduction that uh, the listener is talking about. And I have no idea. I have no idea why they were taken out of the bed, out of the system, mm. knowing that the predicted growth that we have, we, we get this every year, our ageing population, you know, and and the population is growing. So it's it, it's beggar's belief for me, mm. but I'm only a frontline worker. I'm only a person that's patient facing. Mm. So there's other people but, 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 that would but be able to the have thing, Lisa, you, analysis You're on not that. just only a frontline worker. You're the person trying to cope with this every single day and 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 I thank you for spending some time with me this morning to go through it and, and uh, thank you for for the work that you and your colleagues are doing thank you it's nice to hear that and you know patients will always come back and say thank you to us and it's absolutely lovely um one thing i always encourage patients that if you have a good experience now if you have any sort of an experience but a good experience sometimes could be a little bit you know people are not as quick to kind of say it's your service your say on hse.ie and actually that gets to all the staff pretty quickly so anybody that has any experience like that what I normally do when it comes to us and it would always come to consultants I print them out the the patient's perspective we put it up in the staff room and normally if we have a break we're sitting down we're having a cup of tea and read these and oh, do you remember Tom when he came in do you remember PG and you know it's a really nice kind of talking point because it makes us I say fills up our positivity cup it makes us feel like do you know what we are doing a good job despite when you come into work and you see all the headlines yeah. of the newspapers and the foyer saying hospital not fit for purpose or but, you know but, sh- staff workers need to work mm. harder etc this is where we get our little positivity filled up I could fill a morning once a week with stories of people and their experience in, in our system I could fill a, mm-hmm. a morning well, sometimes I could fill two mornings but what I will say over 50% in fact three quarters of the people that I will have on the show will say but PJ the staff are brilliant but yeah. PJ, the staff are run off their feet. But PJ, mm-hmm. I don't know how the staff do it. So the mm-hmm. problem isn't with you guys. It's not. I, yeah, and we know that at, at the end of the day, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it when you come into mm-hmm. work. And, you know, even when you hear it on the news and you're t- the, there's the headline news, I think it was last week and I was coming and I was on call and it was like, the pessimistic outlook is, and they were talking about how it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm just like, right, switch off the radio, put on my, my happy songs, like, because it's everywhere for us. And we're constantly having to face that between media headlines, etc. And then you come into work 
you're trying just to kind of do your best and try not have that negativity for us. Um, but yeah, look, we love our job. Ask any emergency worker, ask any frontline worker. We have to be a special type of personality to absolutely enjoy this work that we do. And we really get great satisfaction out of having the patient come around, be able to resuscitate them, do our work, whether it's even in endoscopy or whatever else it is. Um, and we love it. And we really want to continue on to be able to do it. And the only reason that we're shouting so loud is for patients, because we know the patient experience is not what we would like it to be for our mother, our father, our brothers, our sisters. So we keep shouting. We would love if the public will keep highlighting this and making sure that their stories are heard as well. And we know that the public are definitely behind us as and workers, um, we just need more beds and more care to be able to be given in a nice standard and a nice environment for our patients. I've kept you from your patients for the last while. Dr. Lisa, thank you very much. Thank you very much, PJ. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You'll find her at uh, Dr. Underscore Lisa Underscore Cunningham on Instagram. I think that's one of the most interesting conversations I've had on this show in a long time, directly from the front line of emergency medicine, Dr. Lisa Cunningham. People are dying. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. I remember a few years ago sitting opposite me uh, in the guest's chair here in Studio One. David Babington, you sat and told me about, you know, being a young gay man and what you went through and and the terrible bullying that you suffered and all of that. And did you ever think back then you'd be as happy as you are now with with the other PJ in your life? <laughs> and and little Eden. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. The other PJ that's in my life. <laughs> People will say we're having an affair at this point. <laughs> Go on, my friend. I'm delighted to hear and read that things are going so well. I didn't know you two were together 22 years. Yeah, it'll be 23 years this uh, September, actually, this year. So, yeah, Jesus, oh, my God. I, I The day when I sat in that studio, the the open conversation that I had with you was just, just incredible. And, yeah, and here we are now, um, a few years later, and we're now daddies to an incredible little three-and-a-half-year-old girl. So, yeah, life has changed dramatically, dramatically in the last couple of years. And and Don, living in Donneret, I mean, small town, small village, Ireland, was a yeah. huge, diff, hugely difficult place to be a gay man any time, even. And, but yet you're so happy there. Yeah, like it's where we're living in Donnerail now. We were, you know, um, we we were living in the city, and then we moved to the country six years ago. And um, yeah, like we we've never ever um and you know experienced any form of negativity, any form of of homophobia, especially we're co- becoming uh, dads in the last couple of years. We've never experienced any negativity whatsoever. It's always been incredibly open. The community is just so supportive. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's always been incredible. We've never, ever, ever had a single issue. You met in, in a nightclub. You didn't even own a mobile phone at the time. The whole, <laughs> the, the yeah. whole day... The dating scene. Well, for everyone, it's changed, but particularly on the on the gay scene, it's all it's all changed yeah. now. 
oh my god when, when you go back to geez when myself and PJ did meet you know coming up to 23 years ago it was very you know you meet somebody in a bar or a nightclub and then you you start to romancing that way you court each other as they say but I can't imagine being single now and how I like you know my friends that are single that are on these apps and I just find it just absolutely crazy I, I can't imagine even contemplating meeting someone in that that way of your you're selling yourself before you 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 meet them with these profiles and pictures and yeah it's a very very different ball game altogether and as well when we met geez you know I remember when I when I hit the gay scene first myself back in when what maybe 1994 1995 it was still practically illegal in Ireland to be to be gay mm-hmm. you know uh, you know and I I it's it's yeah it's the, the gay scene has changed dramatically dramatically in in you know the time since myself and pj met which is incredible i love it now i, I walk on patrick street and i see you know two girls holding hands two guys holding hands and back in the day 23 years ago myself and pj would would never been able to be that free did you ever think david as a, as a troubled young mm. gay teenager that you'd ever mm. be as happy as you are now Absolutely not. I didn't think that. You know, you're you you're. It's nearly drilled into you. You know, back from from you know when we came out, that you you keep everything on the down low. You keep everything secretive. Don't really expect to have the same life as as a heterosexual couple. Don't expect to have the same rights as a heterosexual couple. Don't ever expect to get married because it was illegal. You know, and here we are now married with a baby, and we're just we're you know we've stood the test of time. Coming up to twenty three years together, we we got married ten years ago. We're renewing our vows on the third of June of this year, ten years after, and we've come full circle. We're doing it now with our daughter. So I never really, I never would let myself believe that that could be a reality because, like I said, society teaches you that that's not going to happen for you. Well, it's rem- just you don't expect it. I remember. As a gay man, and um, and thank God it has changed so much. I remember first coming across you on social media through my mm-hmm. friend and former colleague Brenda. That's 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 yes, how right. we first came across one another. Then mm-hmm. then we met once or twice, and then you sat in 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 this mm-hmm. studio here, and I think you had the whole city in tears. It was just it was. A, yeah. <laughs> I, I invited you to pour forth, and by God, you poured forth. But now, yeah. but when I when I and, I and I remember looking across the the table, David as. At a, mm. a, a young man who was who was quite broken, if you don't mind my saying, absolutely, completely and, and broken. And now, my God Almighty, mate, it's brilliant. I'm thrilled for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is. We're we're so happy. We're just truly, truly blessed. Um, and we have everything that you know we have wanted. Like I said, I never thought it would happen, but it has happened. And we're we're so happy. And we have everything in the country now. I remember I speak, spoke in Shawen or Salon closed down due to COVID. Everything that, now is in, yeah. in in the country, and we're so happy. We're truly blessed. We really and truly are. All right. We'll give our best to PJ and and to Little Eden uh, and lovely talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on again, PJ. Have a great day. Cheers, fella. 0818 96 96 96. You'll find him on Instagram or all the various platforms as the material boy. He's just so much fun. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96 FM. Now, for some reason, January, the turn of the year, Christmas, the new year, is a big difficulty time for problem gamblers. And I know not why, but it would appear from what you read and see that 
most many people who have a problem with gambling, if they're going to relapse, they're going to relapse in January. No, not why. Um, we have a serious problem, an increasingly serious problem with problem gambling in this country. Um, consultant addiction psychiatrist Professor Colin, Colin O'Gara has been talking about this recently. Um, he said there has to be something done about it. We're really starting to see the effects of the pandemic. And he said people are at risk of relapse, those who have their gambling under control. I'll talk to Professor O'Gara a little bit later. Uh, after 11, but I want to talk to, first of all to a man who's been through this and I guess, are you ever not going through it, own coin? You're you're in recovery now, the last bet was when? 2014. Are you always, always still in recovery? Morning. Hi, how's it going, PJ? Good. You've been in recovery since 2014? Yeah, almost, almost to to the day, yeah. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. So coming up on, on nine years, about six days shy of, of nine years. Well, 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 well done to you. Um, and and how bad was it, mate? Uh, it was pretty bad in terms of the time and energy it consumed from my life, not to mention the uh, financial strain it put on me. Um, but towards the end, I suppose, for the last year to two years it consumed I'd say a good eighty percent of, of of my 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 waking thoughts. Um, you know, how I was gonna have a bet if I didn't have any money, where I was gonna get money, how I was you know, what I was gonna bet on, mm. you know, different races, different soccer matches, whatever it was. Uh the the first thought in the morning was about having a bet and the last thought at night was either about a winner or a loss during the previous day, or what tomorrow would would bring in terms of in terms of having having a bet. Now, I mentioned that research showing that Christmas and New Year are particularly difficult. Why? Why would you say, from your own experience? I suppose with Christmas, there's a couple of things um, that just marry together to create the perfect storm. People have a lot more time in their hands. Uh, you're out of your own routine. You could be off work. Uh, usually going into Christmas, we all try to save up a, a, an extra few bob. And uh, we have that, um, I suppose, ex- extra few few pounds in our pocket. And then on top of all of that, you have wall-to-wall sport on the TV uh, from, say, 12 o'clock in the morning until possibly 10 or 11 at night with, uh, you know, soccer um, horse racing during the day and then into the, the darts in the in the evening. So there are ample opportunities to have a bet and I suppose what has happened over the last 15 years, um, I would say maybe a bit longer, is betting has infiltrated sports so much that they're almost married together. Yeah. So like advertising pushes um, you know, the, the, the kind of belief that you know, sport uh, has to be enjoyed with a bet, whether it's a yeah. first goal scorer in a soccer match or uh, how many 180s are going to be hit during the darts or anything like that. There's uh, numerous markets that, that people can have a bet on yeah. and uh, that that just creates the perfect storm for somebody, whether they're in recovery or whether they're, in, they're susceptible to falling into addiction, whatever it is. Yeah, and, and as, as, as someone who thoroughly enjoys all that Christmas sport, I, I, I can't imagine what it must be like uh, to, 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 to you know, be 
for for you, say, or someone like you watching that sport is, would you call it risky behaviour? Is it risky to watch that sport? Um, well, for me, definitely at the start, I did I did an awful lot to avoid um, watching sport, uh, particularly like horse racing. I remember I gave up in January 2014. Uh, two months down the line, Cheltenham came came along in the calendar, and uh, I did a lot of work in avoiding watching the horse racing, whether it was spend uh, an afternoon in bed or a long walk on the beach or whatever it was. Um, I had to put an awful lot of focus into avoiding it. Uh, not just on the TV, but people talking about it. It, it. Our culture here in Ireland, I know like historically we have a pub culture and all of that, but I think in the last 30 years there's a big gambling culture after creeping into our our, um, our our national psyche and that comes down to us just being a sports mad nation yeah, yeah. and, and uh, the, the, I suppose I think that gambling companies have been very clever in, in how they market their products and how they have married it in with, um, with sport and, and they've become almost intertwined. Yeah. We have a, a new piece of legislation going through the Oireachtas at the moment, Gambling Regulation Bill of 2022. And I think you've had you've had a good read through it. And as someone who's been there, done that and worn the T-shirt, Owen, is it going to work? I would hope so. Um, I would hope so. I mean, there's a lot of things in it. There are a lot of things that are absent from it. And I think that's down to uh, a lack of joined up thinking from uh, the guys who are putting it together. What kind of things uh, are missing? So I suppose the big standout to me would be um, the National Exclusion Register. So at the moment, if I want to exclude myself from a particular uh, bookmaker, I can walk into um, I could walk into uh, a bookie with uh, a form of ID and say I want to exclude myself from this uh, bookmakers and they'll fill out a form and I'll be excluded. I can decide how long I want to exclude myself. I don't think you can exclude yourself indefinitely. I think it goes from some companies will allow you to exclude for six months, others will allow you to exclude for up to five years. And that is, Owen, sorry, that it, no, no branch of that bookie will then take a bet from you. I, uh, well, right? I mean, well, I mean, if I if I exclude myself in Cork and I go to to Dublin, I don't think that they are very stringent in how they um, in how they they, they uh, police it, you know. Um, so, like, I mean, you might you, some of the law, like, if I if I exclude myself in Yall, then perhaps the the company may pass on the message I to say, Middleton or Carrie Tool. C- compare that to the UK then, where you could, the, you can register once and... Exactly. So in the UK, there are, I think, almost 50 uh, licensed operators signed up to a blanket self-exclusion register. And uh, if I log on to that exclusion register in the UK, I can, um, I can ban myself from... All of those, all of those bookmakers, and uh, like it's 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 pretty robust in that in that sense. You know what I mean? Uh, there's actually so like we have 76 licensed uh, bookmakers here in Ireland, and 46 of those 76 are signed up to that in the UK already. What's happening here in Ireland is that the National Register is being set up. 
But if I want to exclude myself, I can only exclude myself from one bookmaker. I see. I see. So, uh, so it, it makes no it makes no sense to me. Yeah. It makes absolutely it it, it it's it, it it doesn't do anything to protect me or anyone who is looking to stop gambling or anybody who's in recovery. Um, it's completely pointless. Our our approach to to gambling as an addiction it, it's looked upon as behavioural rather than than substance. Clearly, it is behavioural rather than substance. Does that? Do we not take it as seriously then, Owen, when in fact we probably should take it even, even more seriously? Yeah, I don't think, like, I suppose it's not a traditional addiction, uh, PJ, in the sense of people's perception of it. So, like, I can understand um, somebody who, I can understand, and, and you and probably the general population can understand somebody who um, has a problem with alcohol and can't stop drinking alcohol because they're doing something like physical you know Mm. there's a physical thing that exactly they need a drink exactly and there's a the substance is the alcohol with gambling um i mean it's you often hear people say and i've heard it um i suppose from 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 people historically and i know people who are in recovery at the moment here a lot is why can't you just stop why can't you just walk out of the bookies why can't you just close your account and it's not the same level of understanding around having an addiction with gambling as there is with say cigarettes or alcohol or drug use and I, I don't know what why that is, but perhaps it is around um, perhaps it is around the fact that it's a, a behavioural addiction. It's what I, I I think it's similar to um, having an eating disorder. You know, if you hear of anyone who suffers with an eating disorder, you, you'd say to them, "Just eat your dinner," you know. And it yeah. sounds like the most it sounds like the most um, it sounds like the simplest thing in the world to do. But for somebody that's stuck in that addiction. It's just impossible, um, and, and 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 you know it's down to things that I'm not educated enough to to know about. I mean, it's down to how your brain chemicals work, the, the reward triggers within your brain that keep bringing you back to this thing that impulses you to gamble and to, to you know that that gives the the brain, all those lovely rewards, um, dopamine hits all, all of the time. That's what draws you back in and that's why we have such a problem with it. It's a sickness so we need to treat it as such. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think we're miles ahead uh, in, other, in other addictions uh, from, from where we are in gambling. You see, um, like take tobacco uh, products, for instance. I mean, you, you wouldn't know that tobacco is on sale in Ireland unless you actively went to went to seek it out. You go into a uh, into a, a shop, you can't see any That's advertising right. for tobacco. Right. It's not on TV. It's not anywhere. And I think when we look back in maybe 15, 20 years, and hopefully we're a lot further down the line with our understanding around gambling, gambling is going to become, you know, the new tobacco Okay, that's that's an interesting prediction and we'll watch it. Owen, thank you very much for talking to me. That's uh, Owen Coyne. We will talk with Professor O'Gara after the news. The Minds are live.
Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96FM. Just there, I want to tell me about ex- excluding yourself, barring yourself effectively from a, from a bookie's you got to do it like one bookie at a time and he wants a national register so that if you bar yourself from one branch of a chain then you're barred effectively from every branch of a chain and that there is in the UK and he's looking for that to be here in Ireland so that someone like him who is a gambling addict although he's in recovery since 2014 and fair play to him you can literally bar yourself from the whole network in one go. It's not possible here. I used to work in different bookies, says this call, in both the UK and Ireland. It's the GDPR legislation that prevents the shops from sharing information. Oh, that bloody GDPR. Don't start me on GDPR because people who've spoken to me who work in, shall we say, sensitive areas, and that's as far as I'll go, they've told me that this blasted GDPR since it came into our lives in 2018 it's actually made so doing your job so much harder for so many people really has I know it's probably a good thing that our data is protected and minded and isn't out there for all and sundry to see and to take hold of that was the intention but it's just made life so hard for people trying to do their job thanks though if the government was serious about this gambling issue they would not allow banks to have ATM machines in bookies or in close proximity to bookies they're just not taking it seriously that's Noel in Castle Martyr I wouldn't be a frequent visitor to bookies I might go in during Cheltenham and throw a couple of quid down and subsequently lose it at the end of the day that would be it uh, maybe maybe I might have a small punt on a Grand National. That would be the size of it. So I don't know. I've never seen. I wouldn't be in bookies often enough to see what's in there. Um, but anyway, thanks, Noel. 0818 96 96 96. The number of the text to WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. Now, Professor Colin O'Gara has said that the issue of problem gambling is now at a point of no return. There has to be something done about it and soon. We're really starting to see the effects of the pandemic. Professor O'Gara is consultant addictions psychiatrist at St. John of God's. He joins me now. Professor, good morning. Those are strong words. Uh, hi, PJ. Uh, can you hear me? I can indeed. Loud and clear, Colin. Perfect. perfect Those very perfect. strong words, Colin. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's, there's, there's no question that uh, in my mind that we've reached a position where um, the product of gambling is uh, so widely available and the harm that has been caused by that uh, is significant. I don't think that we um, are all the time uh, cognizant of the harm that has been caused. So if you look to the UK, um, Public Health England would uh, estimate the harm from gambling to be about 1.27 billion British pounds, um, and that's that. You know that accounts for a bigger population, of course, than our own, but um, a substantial amount of individuals who suffer from gambling disorder and need treatment. Yeah. So the Institute of Public Health in Ireland would estimate 
40,000 problem gamblers in Ireland. I think that's an underestimate because I think it's a good start, but I think it's an underestimate. But if you, because if you look at Northern Ireland, the estimates up there are about two to three percent of the population affected. But put so, so, so there's significant harm when you look at those figures and the treatment provision at the moment, PJ, is pretty much non-existent. So you have a product which is harmful, which we know is harmful, which is generally ex- accepted can be harmful. I know I know that others don't get harmed, right? That's yeah. fair enough. Yeah. But in terms of, say, tobacco or drugs or alcohol, um, you know, we look at those things and say they're harmful. Uh, or they, Sorry, they can be harmful. Mm. Um, but in the case of gambling, I think over the past 10 years in particular, we've become more accustomed to looking at it now, not just as a leisure activity, but as a public health concern. So so that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, I, I, I'm at the forefront of, you know, you know uh, sorry, on the cold face of treating people with all different types of addictions. Yes. But in recent years, I've seen an awful lot more young men in particular who suffer from this condition. And uh, the purpose of, you know, uh, making a commentary on it, PJ, is to try and raise awareness so that, we can get uh, funding and finance uh, towards the people who suffer from these conditions because my work has shown shown me that it's not only devastating to the individual but multiple uh, individuals around that individual. That the international literature would would put it around eight people around the individual in gambling disorder are severely affected as well. To meet someone, to meet someone in active addiction, say come, someone come into your office in there in St John of God's, to meet someone who's in active addiction to heroin or in act, active addiction to alcohol or active addiction to anything, they may look very sick. Someone who's in active addiction to gambling may look as healthy as you or me, and that's part of the problem. You don't see the sickness, do you? No, and that's probably the most significant difference from a clinical point of view, when just as you've outlined. And the other thing is it's a very sticky and difficult condition, even when you get people into treatment. So we often have a case where cases where people are telling us, young men are telling us everything is going fine. Uh, I haven't gambled in six months, 12 months, whatever. And the family are utterly convinced that that's the case. And we subsequently find out that they've been gambling the whole time. So, you know, it's it, the, the markers even in recovery. So, you know, leading up to a diagnosis of gambling disorder, it's hidden. But even in recovery, if somebody relapses in the case of alcohol dependence, you know, it's generally people lose control and they might go on a binge for a few days, similarly with drugs. And it's 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 visible, but with gambling, unfortunately, when you relapse as well, it can be incredibly hidden. And you know, I suppose when you when you when you've worked in this area for 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 a period, you'll you'll know that uh, a, a report of gambling, um, you know, is not necess- doesn't necessarily mean that the person isn't gambling. So in the case of alcohol and drugs, you can do blood tests and you can. Yes. Yes. Do do various kind of uh, you know breath tests or hair analysis or you can do all sorts of tests in those and there will be strong indicators that the person has relapsed. But in gambling addiction, you can't. Which must make it much harder to treat. You you, you look at the pandemic, which thankfully we hope at least, Colin is is in the rearview mirror, if not gone. Um, but you believe 
clinically that there's a huge surge in problem gambling. Would it be as a result of the pandemic or as a consequence of the pandemic, do you think? Well, you know, I, th- I think even prior to the pandemic, the, the emergence of, um, you know, uh, the technology and smartphones really is, is what changed things in my view. And that would be a, wi- a widely held view. I mean, if you look at the late 90s, some of the gambling companies who are land-based and some of the most successful online gambling companies now took a gamble of sorts, you know, they, they would have looked at, at the potential for online gambling and moved pretty much all of their business into the online space. So some of the most successful companies now who pay out annually, pay out hundreds of millions of sterling to particular, you know, to, 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 to the CEOs of those companies, um, you know, they, they really had seen the potential for online and everybody carrying around potentially a gambling suite of products in their pocket. And that's essentially what happened in terms of if you make any addictive processor or, or substance readily available, the end harm will increase. So we see that with alcohol. If you make alcohol more available, end rates of cirrhosis will inc- increase and people will, will have increased rates of liver disease. It's no different in the case of gambling. If you put a um, sophisticated, you know, high technology mm. uh, suite of products into somebody's pocket and then you back it up with, with celebrity endorsement and bombard people with ads over a decade, the end result is going to be an increase in particular age groups, particularly 17 to 35 young men where the ads are targeted at. And again, as a leisure activity, it is, it's over the past 10 to 15 years, it's been promoted as a leisure activity and not a public health yeah. concern. As, as someone who, who enjoys watching sports, Colin, and, and doesn't, thankfully, I'm no interest in gambling. I very rarely even have a flutter. But what I do notice is, I remember during the Euros, uh, the Euro Championships, there was one particular television ad, which was an absolutely enormous production. It was stunning to watch. And at the end, you realise it's for a gambling company. Now, if I was, if I had a gambling problem, that ad has me reeled in and I'm gone for the app on my phone to start betting. Yeah, it's twofold, PJ. I would say, you know, initiation. So in other words, starting gambling, if somebody hasn't started, they might look at the ad and say, that's quite attractive. I wouldn't mind giving that a go. So obviously adolescents in particular are going to be curious, similarly to the initiations of in, initiation uh, theories of drugs and alcohol. Um, there, there's a lead in there, but also somebody who is gambling, there's a maintenance piece. So a lot of the you know literature around gambling and the effect that it has on the individual supports that idea that these ads not only affect initiation, but also maintenance. Mm. And they're going out during games and before and after games and putting out there with Owen before 11, even the darts, which was on over Christmas, people betting on how many 180s would be in a match. And you can do that online while the match is on. Like That's insidiously dangerous for someone who's on the edge. So the, you're absolutely correct. And, and that's what the literature supports is that in-play betting does have a disproportionate effect on problem gamblers. So it's a more, um, you know, it's a faster version, basically, of, you know, maybe laying odds in a particular match. Uh, you know, it's constant and it leads to this more chaotic picture. So a lot of the, you know, young men that we would uh, meet and that would t- uh, give the, the histories to us, 
they would talk about the gambling becoming increasingly chaotic. So you would start in a controlled fashion, you know, on premiership matches. But, you know, once the chaos sets in, you're gambling on a tennis match in the middle of the night in South America. So really that end of it. And, there's, you know, at this stage, it's, it's probably 10 years. The in-play piece is, is, is particularly problematic, as is the hoarding, advertising. There's electronic hoarding in the stadium. That's right. There's ads going on, uh, you know, in the dugouts. There's ads on jerseys. There's ads pre, peri, and post-match. Mm-hmm. And as you say, then it's not just soccer. And we, we've, our own research has, has looked at this. We've looked across, you know, where, 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 where the worst cases of uh, ads, you know, in, in terms of sport. But really, it is across the board. It's across sports now and mm-hmm. it's across different channels. So we have reached, in my view, a point of saturation. The new gambling regulation bill, which is due for enactment next year, will ban ads up to the watershed, which would be nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. But we've suggested that, uh, you know, because so much damage has occurred in the past 10 years, I think we really need to look at banning ads across television and radio for at least a period of time, probably indefinitely. But mm-hmm. again, you know, th- that's not necessarily going to fix the problem because so much of what happens is online. And that online space is incredibly difficult. Yeah, to, I mean, you can take the ads please, off the you know. telly. You can take the ads off the telly, but you can't take them off the phone or the tablet. No, and that space is it's international. A lot of it is in Gibraltar and a lot of the UK companies post deregulation 2005 with the Tony Blair government you know, the agreement was that all the funds would, you know, that, that the uh, uh, deregulation of gambling there would lead to huge revenues in the UK. The, the Actually, the opposite happened, whereby they went offshore to the likes of Gibraltar. And, um, you know, that space is, you know, we, we looked at this again in our own research. We looked at .ie and .com companies. But once you get into .com companies, it's endless. And, and, and there's constant iterations. And this is probably why some of the more... Uh, established land-based gambling operators want regulation because they don't want the feeding frenzy of all the other companies that are online. Mm. Might I finish briefly, Colin, with maybe a clinical question? And I I appreciate that by the time someone comes to see you at St. John of God's, they're in trouble. So maybe not that individual, but People who are listening right now, if, if they're concerned about a young one, or a loved one rather, and if the person themselves who's listening knows I'm getting a bit fond of this. Where do they start to reach out for help? Yeah, so from a clinical point of view, PJ, um, there there are supports. That's the first thing to say, although the, the you know, from a cohesive national service provision point of view, and if you're to be critical, it, it, it's close to, you know, it's it's not anywhere where it needs to be. Mm. There's a lot, there's some community addiction teams that will uh, treat gambling disorder, but, um, you know, th- there isn't any organized um, arrangement there. So really, as a starting point, I'm going to start with uh, Gamblers Anonymous. I think, you know, as a mutual support group, that's a fabulous mm. input and has helped people hugely. Mm. I mean, it's very much based on 12 steps and an AA's input, but in terms of accessibility, a- availability in a national network, you cannot beat um, the input of, of GA or Gamblers Anonymous. So that's one input. Some people don't want to go to groups, so they want one-to-one input. Um, there are some wonderful statutory uh, inputs available from a one-to-one 
point of view and I would direct listeners to Extern Problem Gambling, previously known as Problem Gambling Ireland, um, to two councillors in there in particular, Tony O'Reilly um, and uh, Barry Grant. And they are very good at, at signposting depending on where you are in the country, but they can, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're a very good starting point. As is, I mean, general practice at the moment is under huge strain. But if you do have a link and you can get into your general practitioner, it's an also a very good uh, starting point. And locally, there are, I mean, you know, depending on, again, where you are, but, you know, there are um, various uh, organizations, uh, you know, rehabs that, that will uh, be very helpful, such as the Clunvera Network, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they have various locations if people wanted to Google them around the country, um, and including Cork. So, um, you know, so so it's the group piece, there's the individual piece, and then there's the statutory groups that do rehab as well. So okay. there are, you know, there, there's plenty of, of, of inputs there. I think the key thing is that people just make that initial step, talk to somebody either within their family or friends, it, you know, uh, highlight the fact that there is a difficulty and that they're willing to get help. And, okay. and from there, you know, that's that's a great starting point, you know. All right. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning, Professor Colin O'Gara, consultant addiction psychiatrist at St. John of God's. If you do need help, uh, like Colin said there, gamblersanonymous.ie. A lot of information on that. And they have a monthly open meeting, which they have down there in the middle parish. Uh, the time and date I forget now, but they do have a monthly open meeting where you can just go and sit in at the back of the meeting and hear what's going on. Um, I, I did that one time just purely for research purposes. I was fascinated by what I heard and I'm very upset by it. Gamblersanonymous.ie is one. And then uh, Professor Gara mentioned extern problem gambling. Their email is info at problemgambling.ie info at problemgambling.ie or there's a number you can text and it's 89 241501 89 all the meeting times for Gamblers Anonymous I expect including that public meeting are on the website 0818 Drive home weekdays from four on Cork's 96 FM. January, it doesn't have the best reputation, does it? On the big drive home, though, we're banishing the blues every evening. There's a bit of this. There's a bit of that. Every summer I'd be going to the bog and doing turf. I could confirm a tea break at the bog is the best. And there's a bit of whatever this is. He does a four nipples. Yeah, you had to be there for that one. Basically, whatever it takes to make your journey home that bit easier. So leave the January blues at the door and join me weekdays from four. The Big Drive Home. Cork's 96 FM. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with Back to pubs and drinking culture and all of that in just a sec. But first, we're only days away from this. Live free in 23. Oh my God! With Cork Credit Unions. Here for you always. Spending money. Cork's 96 FM. Whatever you think this is, it's bigger. We have... No words to describe the sheer size of this. Live free 
in 23. The cost of living for one loyal listener cut, slashed, hacked, done away with. This is the ultimate live free price. There's a holiday involved, there's free fuel, free shopping in the supermarket, concert tickets, there's a credit union account with your name on it and cash in it, computers, electrical goods, fashion, beauty, you name it. You name it. It's in there. And more besides. And all the deeds come out next Monday. Uh, you'll be listening for your chance to text or WhatsApp to get involved in Live Free in 23 with Cork Credit Unions. Here for you always. And only on Cork's 96 FM. So excited about that. It can be such a buzz. Such an enormous price. 0818 96 96 96. Now back to Paul. We were talking earlier on to Paul Rick down at the Welcome In, the last... Uh, early morning house in Cork and we did it onto a kind of a more broad discussion of pub culture and and all of that and he was making the point uh, about um, house parties and about how, how many young people are going to house parties and that if we get them into the pubs in actual fact it's a more supervised way it's a better way to, to monitor drinking you were listening to that point Mary morning Yes, TJ, sorry, I've raised this before, but it's it's an ongoing issue and it's the fact that young people are going out and they have to nearly beg to get into some places. The pub, like, you know, they're, if they're in a group, it frequently happens that, you know, X number get in, they pay a big cover charge, next thing two of the group aren't allowed in. Yes. And, you know, the, there's substantial cover charges for some of these places as well and then there's two or even one I know certainly in cases that a girl has been left out on her own on the street with all her friends yeah all um, her friends gone that in is, is it? that is actually dangerous yeah and it's unacceptable if you are old enough as I said you should be able to go in your licence is to sell drink to over 18s yes that is the law you can't randomly decide that someone should. who's 20 can't go in or someone who's 19 exactly. can't. And all their mates are... And, and they let it none can change in or all from in. night to night and it can change from hour to hour and it can change too. And I know anecdotally of kind of if you're on the right team and if you know or whatever, if you're out with... Do you know what I mean? If you're known, you can do what you like. And you know what I mean? They change the rules and they change everything and they leave you in on a quiet night and they won't leave you in if you're busy. That's not, none of that is fair and it's driving a kind of culture that they just don't bother anymore. It's humiliating yeah. and it, but more importantly, it's dangerous. Yeah. I think it is completely irresponsible to leave a girl yeah. on the street. I'm wondering is it more of a problem for, for young girls, Mary? And, and I'm thinking in this context of no. My daughter is in her mid twenties, yep. so she doesn't have those mm-hmm. problems anymore. But when they would have been nineteen or twenty or twenty-one, perfectly of age to have a drink, you know, there's always one friend in the group who's the same age, but God bless her, still looks about sixteen. Do you know? Exactly. That's, that's like yeah. you. Either, and then my, there's fourteen-year-olds look as if they're twenty-six. You know what I mean? But like in my mind, if I would have said, if there's four girls come to the door or five girls come to the door, yeah. it's one in. Or none in. Sorry, one, all in or none in. Yes. Don't leave yes. one misfortunate girl out there saying, sorry, love, yes. you're not coming in tonight. That's ridiculous. Yes, and the cover charge then as well, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? There's a tenor into some of these places. Yeah. So if you've paid your tenor, 
and then you see your friend outside and then which of the friends is going to go out and in fairness they are very good for looking after each other but I'm just kind of taking the point and their whole I won't say their pub experience is affected by the way they are being treated when they're in this transition stage it was very different and when we were younger you could you could buy what you wanted when you were 16 and I was cutting to and and you know it was but it was points they're drinking differently they're the whole kind of thing around it is different. You just don't go in in jeans and a jumper and sit down mm. and listen to a bit of music and, you know. And there was always pubs that you did and didn't go into that kind of by the music they played or by mm. the we, decor we, of the place. We all had our favourites. We all had the places we wouldn't go. And Por- they all had, yeah. The point you know that Porrick was making, though, yeah. that when they can't do that, when the four or five girls can't get in because one of them is deemed to be too young or wearing the wrong jeans or whatever it is these days I don't know like that they all go off then because they support their friend but they should anyway or or the next time they're they're afraid it's them yeah or they're going to go so they just don't even bother trying and they're kind of being forced I suppose down a road of different type of so they're going to the off licence and they're going to the house party and there's no control over that drinking and that's where the problem starts yeah and as I said like kind of thing a girl as I say any girl being left out on their own on the street is just not acceptable totally wrong totally wrong Mary thank you good point 0818 PJ so Sarah our German au pair is 18 she's having a terrible time trying to get into pubs and clubs with the others who are a little older than her. It's really impacting her experience of Ireland. Yeah, there's always one in the group, particularly when they're at that age. Remember from my own time working in the pubs and clubs, DJing and things like that. There was always one in the group who, who looks a little bit younger. She's this, I think it maybe affects girls more, I don't know. There's always one, like you've, they're all 18, 19, 20, 19, 20, 21. There's always one kid who looks that little bit younger of the four or five that are going in. She might have an idea with her. But, like, why would you just stop a group of four or five because one looks a little bit younger? It's either, or stop the one and let the three or four friends in. Why would you do that? That's just bonkers. PJ, what do you think of this? I was in town with my husband and three kids on New Year's Eve and around three o'clock there was a massive downpour. I ran into a pub on Alpruga Street to take cover. I was going to get the kids hot chocolate, get myself a glass of wine. The pub was almost empty. Straight away, the barman said, sorry, over 23s. Couldn't believe my ears. I'm three o'clock of the day, place empty, loads of free tables. My kids are young, but very well behaved. Is this even legal? I was disgusted. We're not big pub goers, as my husband doesn't drink. But I thought it was really anti-family. Curious to know what you li- about Emily. Thank you. For goodness sake, sir, you're running out of the rain. Your man is sitting there looking down over the counter at an empty pub. They're all complaining about there's no business like. They're all complaining about how their pubs are unsustainable. So he's sitting there looking down at an empty pub, and in comes this woman running out of the rain, orders a glass of wine for herself. And a couple of hot chocolates or whatever, or maybe a glass of Coke and crisps for the kids. And your man goes, oh no, over 23. Would you go away and do one? It's three o'clock in the day, for pity's sake. Oh, Emily, 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 Emily. 0818 96 96 96. To hospitals and staff and the suffering of the staff on the front line. 
and what they're going through right now in the middle of this uh, crisis. Christine. Hello, PJ. Hi, your husband was in hospital. He was in hospital last May, he had a bypass. Yeah. And I would say the care he got in there was next to none. Yeah. And I would say, like, there was nurses on there at night and they'd be on the morning. He hadn't any phone, but they used to ring me every night and every morning to tell me how he was doing. Talking to I, Dr. Lisa earlier on about what people are experiencing on the front line and talking also to a, another lady on the telephone earlier on, Eileen, about what, meeting one nurse and the nurse said to her she had 40 people to look after. She yeah, yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's it was insane. crazy. Like, they were running off their feet, like. And then he went back for a checkup and he was going down the corridor and the nurses spotted him and they ran over to him and they said, how are you, Eddie? And he was so believed that they knew him. Yeah. And was he taken in suddenly or was it a planned operation? No, it, was, it was. He went in. He went to the doctor. He had, um, he was caught for breath. Yeah. And I would say to her own doctor, Dr. Trish Harrigan, she said, oh, Eddie, she said, you better go straight to the region. He had no pain or nothing, just caught for breath. Yes. And he went in and he, he was in that. But the care he got was next to none. Good, good. Yeah. Oh, I would, I would say, and as it, he goes in there now to check up with Doctor Prahi, and he's a lovely man. How is he now? He's good. Thank God, he's good, good now. He's good. His bloods are low now, but like our own doctor is giving him iron injections at the good. moment. Good, good. But good. I would say it was a wake up call for him because he worked hard all his life in the building. Yeah. But just uh, when he retired, this all happened to him. I know. I know. Need to but mind. you know, thank God he's there. Good, good. Need to mind the And I would and say no. And a happy new year to yourself and, and to all you, your Christy, staff. And to Eddie. No, and else. you do a great job, PJ. Thank you so much for that. You're so kind. Thank you. Uh, Christine, again, Eddie goes to the doctor, bit caught for breath. Doctor says, don't like the look of this, Ed. you got to go out there and go through the ED and... He ends up in a bypass. He'd have been, now, remember talking to Lisa earlier on, Dr. Lisa, about how he'd have been triaged and he'd have been met by someone and he'd been given a score out of his triage. And they're not making it up. It's it's an international scoring system and he'd be given a score. He'd be seen. And now he's in good health. Thanks. Thank you, Christine. 0818969696. On more on drinking and betting and stuff. Bernie said there's so much emphasis on put on drink are we not ignoring the options for young people to go for a meal? Drink doesn't have to be at the heart of our culture. Very valid point, Bernie. You're you're absolutely correct. It doesn't, but just on this particular occasion, we're talking about youngsters not being able to get into a pub. One group, particularly one girl in a group of three or four, I think it's so unfair and and so stupid to stand at the door of a pub and say, you, you, you and you, but not you. And that girl's got ID. Sorry, you, you, you and you, but not you. Like, why would you do that? What What's going on there? That's a power trip. I'm sorry, that is a power trip. And it happens more to girls, I would think. 0818 96 96 96. On the betting problem, I think it would help if when the odds of, or the results of racing are announced, the betting shouldn't be shown the the odds. Yeah, you obviously don't so the three ten at Killarney was won by Emma 
and three to one, whatever. Yeah, you leave the three to one out. Okay, that that's a suggestion. That's a suggestion. Um, we years ago, I can remember it, and it all changed over the years now. But we we years ago used to do betting updates in the sports news, and that got we weren't not allowed to do that anymore now. But you you had betting updates in the sports news. You had a match coming up, Liverpool and Manchester United, and you'd have odds on Liverpool and odds on Manchester United and odds on the draw. And we'd get those a couple of times a week. That's all gone now. You're not allowed to do that. And to be honest, it's no loss, really. Uh, Tom says, a friend of mine who's in recovery told me something that surprised me. If you win, this is interesting, if you win, it's easy enough to walk away uh, it's when you lose that the desire is at its strongest to try to win back your stake. There should be a limit on what you can spend, let's say 500 euro. You'd be given monopoly money in return for your cash. And once your 500 euro is gone, that's it. You can't gamble anymore that day or that week. It's another thought. And Paul says even the leisure centres with slot machines have an ATM in all of them, says Paul. So none of that helps. Thank you, Alana, for bringing this up. I heard you mention when you took a fall, PJ, you went into hospital and with pain meds, you were happy to wait in the A&E. I think that's part of the problem. The expectation is that we'll wait. We shouldn't have to wait. And if the health service was fit for purpose, we wouldn't have to wait. If you get sick in Spain or other areas of Europe, you're straight in to the clinic. You're seen within minutes by doctors. They just seem to do health so much better than we do. I think there needs to be a root and branch disbanding of the HSE. It's not fit for purpose. Thanks, Alana. What Dr. Lisa was explaining was the triage system where a person is graded according to how they present. And I would have been, I think, a three, which meant I needed to be seen. I needed to be checked out. But I wasn't going to be in the same level of priority as someone who had a head injury or chest pain or difficulty breathing. So I would be waiting until those people were seen before me. I wasn't happy about it. No one's happy sitting on a shagging chair with bad tea or bad coffee out of a vending machine and a book for... No one's happy about that. But I do take your point. It should be faster. And I remember going to an ED in Britain one time when I, I was over for a match and I realised I needed medicine because I had a ear infection developing and I couldn't walk into Boots and get it I needed an antibiotic I knew I had a, an infection coming on and I got a bus on my friend's instruction I got a bus to a, an emergency department where they happened to have their equivalent of South Dock on the same campus and I watched what happened when I was seen by the the triage nurse and I told the triage nurse what I needed and she said look you're going to be waiting about an hour but the doctor will see you I said that's fine and I went in I sat down I waited I watched what was going on uh, uh, yeah you wouldn't you shouldn't have to wait I take that point Alana 0818 96 96 96 join the conversation call us now 0818 96 96 96 this is the opinion line with PJ Coogan Coach 96 FM the IBAL Irish Business Against Litter charts for want of a better word were out again uh, the last couple of days and 
we've talked to them over the years, IBAL, about their findings and sometimes they give Cork a, a hard time and sometimes they give some parts of Cork a better time than others and you know yourself. But that's kind of talking heads and, and survey and statistics stuff. Rory McDonald, you lead a crew, <clears throat> an actual crew of 10 people who go out litter picking twice a month. Well, first of all, well done and thank you for doing that. Secondly, why? Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I, I, on, on, a, on, a, on an average day, we have 10 people going around the city centre um, picking up uh, litter discarded by people. Um, and the whys of it, I suppose, is um, well, I, I think I speak for the group when I, when I say we just, we, just, we just love Cork and we hate to see it in such dire straits. Um, the recent report just kind of highlights Really, that uh, how we feel is, is validated that Cork City is very littered and that something needs to be done about it. What kind of things now? It's a dirty, filthy, manky day for walking anywhere, let alone out to collect litter. But let's just imagine it was a nice, dry, bright day out there. What would you find? Um, I mean, check out our Instagram there, uh, Cork City Cleanup, and you'll see we, we, we document everything we find really, really well. Um, lots of bottles, glass bottles, um, lots of cans drinking cans, alcohol cans, uh, plastic, coffee cups, um, you know, uh, compostable and otherwise. Um, just a huge array of things, just anything you'd imagine that you throw away. And sadly as well, also drug litter as well. We, we come across lots of used needles and uh, spoons and uh, kind of wrapping as well that kind of comes with those, uh, with that kind of litter. I'll come back to the drug paraphernalia because... In fairness, when when you're spaced out, you're never going to look for a bin. That's that's just not going to happen. But yeah. in in terms of the bottles, the cans, the coffee cups, etc., sandwich wrappers, I assume, like, are there enough bins around? Um, I like I, I would say there are enough bins around. Um, maybe some of the argument then would be about the bins that are there is that they're not emptied enough. Uh, mm. we, we would clean up a lot along the uh, the Lee Walk there between UCC and uh, the North Mile there, where it connects with Sunday as well. And uh, we come a lot, a lot of, across a lot of bins that are just overflowing. Um, and those are the kind of ones, the ones that are kind of uh, really kind of just on the outskirts of the city and where it's not just a simple couple of steps to the next bin. Um, people kind of taking on themselves to either kind of haphazardly shove it into an overflowing bin or just to throw it on the ground or whatever it is that they do. Um, yeah, they probably should be emptied more. There maybe even should be some more of them. But where do you stand, Rory, as someone who does this all the time, on personal responsibility? The idea is, well, that's your coffee cup. Yeah. Stick it into your pocket. Stick it into a... Take it home. Dump it at home. Where do you stand on that? Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with that, you know, and um, I, like I've, I've spent time abroad, I've lived abroad, and there's definitely cultures in other, in other places I live where they really, the onus is on the person to take it home with them. If there's nowhere for them to put the bin, put the rubbish, um, then they, they just need to take it home and, and dispose of it, you know, themselves. Now, I, I, would, I would definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, there is a huge element of, you know, we come across a lot of kind of alcohol, alcohol-related waste, yeah. um, you know, when you when you're talking about the drug paraphernalia yeah, and how you kind of off come your head. Back to that. Yeah. If you, I mean, in fairness, if you are spaced, you're not going to pick up your syringe or your spoon and and find a nice tidy place to put it. Away. You're not. But no. 
you come across a lot of it and would it be I, my always, my fear is and I've had many many people call me parents have called me over the years about you know getting out of the car and putting the child in the buggy and there's a used syringe in the drain yeah, yeah. um like there we we've uh, we're not encouraged by the HSC but we have received kind of training um more of kind of a defensive point of view than an offensive kind of thing we're, we 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 have stuff there to help us collect this kind of uh, drug litter safely, um, and we can store them, and then we, we they get collected off us by the HSE, and I presume they're incinerated. Because you um, don't just grab that; you've got to no, very carefully no. take that up. Yeah, yeah we, we we have the equivalent of like chainmail gloves <laughs> that we use to pick it. They're, they're stick-proof gloves, and uh, you know the we we. we they don't tell us to do it, but the HSE, if we're going to do it, they want us to do it safely. Indeed. You know, and do you come across much of it, Rory? Um, you know, thinking back, I think it was probably a lot more during during lockdown. Maybe a lot of the services that were available for drug users were overflowing or closed, or you know, there's probably different restrictions, and they were doing it out in public more. Um, there are areas that just um, you know constantly have something. You know, it might be a used spoon or just some wrappers, but um, we don't always find the needles, but we can always assume that they're there in areas where it's clear that some drug use has gone on. Mm-hmm. Um, they are provided with these um, kind of one-use pocket-sized containers for the needles. And, you know, sometimes you come across those and we give them a shake and you can hear a rattle. Yeah. Um, so we know that they, you know, some of them, you know, even though they are spaced, as you said, that they are being you know, somewhat responsible yeah. and uh, kind of disposing of it carefully. But there is there is a danger there that they might not be in a, in a, in a state to do that, you know. Indeed, indeed. You're always looking for new volunteers. What's the commitment involved? Just is it twice a month you do it? Is it a team? Is it uh, a roster? Yeah, it's the first and third uh, Sunday of every month. We, uh, we meet between uh, half 11 and 10 to 12 there in front of the Opera House. Um, so uh, we kind of meet there in a group and kind of judge how many people are there, and we we set off then and we we clean up a clean up an area um, that we know is littered, you know. Good for you, good for you. And Cork you. City cleanup crew on Instagram, and you have pictures of what the stuff that you found, which is very enlightening. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> thank you. Enlightening and a bit frightening too. Rory, thank sure. you very much. That's Rory McDonald from the Cork City. Clean up crew. They meet uh, first. Do you say first, third Sunday of the month uh, outside the opera house, and they find an area and they go to to clean it up. And the place is generally, unfortunately, quite manky with the dirt. Yeah. 0818-969696. I'm just going through stuff to see have I got through everything today. Uh, we've been busy. We've been very busy. Uh, and I'm not. Oh yes, listen. Before I go, there's a new film out about the treaty. I don't know about this, but a new film out about the treaty, uh, and the caller didn't catch the details of what it is and when it's on. It seems to be in the cinemas, not on television. I know it's a totally random request to finish the show with, but has anybody actually heard of that? A new film out about the treaty. So you can let us know, and we'll let Cork know tomorrow. That's it. Programme edited by Imro Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thank you for all your messages and your communications. See you tomorrow, just after nine. Is on love for belters only, making you feel good? Or has Lewis Capaldi got you thinking, forget him? What I want. Tell us the music you want to hear. And what songs should disappear with the Cork's 96FM Music Panel. Take our 10-minute music survey. And you could win a 100 euro penny voucher. Give it a go right now. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Give me what I want.
more. See 96fm.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 